Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton, and along with me on this journey, revisiting 80s movies, is my co-host, Jason Masek. Hello, Jason. Hello, Bill Bant. I'm excited about today's episode because we have another guest host. We have the Emmy-nominated executive producer of the reality-making competition show, Nailed It, on Netflix, and the upcoming show, Secret Chef, on Hulu. It's our good friend, Patrick J. Duty, joining us. Hiya, gents. It is a... I appreciate you having me. I've been very honored to ask. I was... uh... Just saying this before we started the recording that this is my first podcast I've ever been asked to be on, much less have been recorded on. So pop in the podcast, Cherry. If that's a thing, we're doing it tonight here on the All 80s Movie Podcast. Virgin Pod. That's a very 80s theme. Fred Virgins and Breaking Cherry. That's it. The last great American virgin in podcast world happening tonight here. There we go. So thank you. I love it. We try to fill out all the 80s tropes within every pod that we do. <laughs> Uh, thanks for doing this, man. Uh, just really, really looking forward to diving into this film awesome. with you. We know you're a fan, yep. so we can get it moving right now. I'm ready. So, Patrick, uh, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and your shows, Nailed It and Secret Chef? All right. Well, let's uh, let's take it. Let's go back. Let's we're this is all about nostalgia. Let's do a little fun backstory for the listeners because they may not know that the three of us have a history together. They're just tuning in and going. These guys are all talking about 80s movies, but they don't know that we all actually know each other. Um, University of Miami Film School in the, in the 90s, the three of us were there. Uh, Jason and I, obviously, well, people don't know, but Bill knows we had been partnered up on several films, hopefully many to never be seen ever. They'll just live on in our memories. <laughs> and then Bill and I are forever bonded from the time we played, respectively, Gomez, Adams, and Lurch for a Adams Family Values live promo event at the Parrot Jungle. And uh, I recently posted the picture. It's a great. Film. That was a great. That was a quite an event. You were a great lurch. L- little did I know your character work would come into such play in your whole life. But the the lurch was. I looked like a doofus, but you looked awesome. Um, and you really owned it. And then um, so last few years writing uh, some low budget horror films. Did a little coal horror mine. Uh, sorry, a little coal mine horror movie called Beneath with my writing partner Chris Valenziano. Also University of Miami guy. Also opening scene stars a gentleman named Jason Masick who plays the best rescue mine worker you've ever seen. Like he looks like he's very concerned. He's very selfless. He's in there. He's saving lives. He's moving rocks. He's looking. For, we got a survivor. He's looking for survivors. Uh, hell of a scene. I feel like we didn't have that moment. We probably could not have had a film that was that set the tone. And now I've just found a pretty really interesting and fun career in running reality competition shows. You mentioned Nailed It, which is a comedy baking show. And it's a total blast. And I love doing it. And that's the short of it. Well, all right. Thanks for sharing that. That's just a walk down memory lane, Patrick. Uh, but the simple fact is, Patrick, that's not enough. We need to know more. What? We came up with a list. <laughs> what? We came up I'm with a list ready. of rapid fire questions right. to ask you. Okay. What do you say, Patrick? You is ready? there going to be a, a countdown, a clock? Is it like a competition? Do I have to hear like a time call? No. What was your first movie you ever saw in the theater? Silver Streak. Ooh. Good answer. What is your go-to snack when watching a movie? Goobers. Who is your favorite actor and or actress? Ken Foree. Wow. What is your favorite horror movie of all time? Dawn of the Dead, followed by Night of the Living Dead as a close second. It was a tough one, but Dawn of the Dead has to be number one. Great answer. And finally, which 80s movie character did you dress up as for Halloween? Michael Myers. And I was brought home by the police dressed as Michael Myers. Can I ever tell you that story? Uh, We want to hear it right now. So 
my brother had introduced me to the Halloween film series, and he was a huge fan of it. And then in 1988, Halloween 4 came out. It was a resurgence of Myers had come back. It had not been around. He had not been around since like the early 80s, since Halloween 2. And it was a huge hit. And suddenly you could actually get Michael Myers masks, which were had been unavailable for a very long time. The like the original Don Post looking mask from the film. And so I bought the mask. You know, it took me months to get it. And I, I got it and I put it on Halloween night and I'm walking around and uh, I start to notice that like everybody on my block is all parked at one end of the street. And I, I, by the way, you put this mask on, if you've ever worn a Michael Myers mask, you really, you really own this character. You really feel it's terrifying to be in this mask and you, you are silent. You say nothing to people. You make, you sell the whole bit. Little did I know that I was terrifying some children and I look at the end of the block and the whole block is there and someone's going, it's this guy down there. And I see the police drive up to me in my neighborhood on Halloween. Our neighborhood in Saganesh in Chicago always had police presence on Halloween because kids were always vandalizing shit. They pull up next to me and they're like, Hey, Jason. Right. And they don't fucking know what they're talking about. And I was like, it's, it's Michael Myers. who is about Christ. I talked back to the cops. They're like, well, whatever it is, you're scaring the kids. Go home. I was like, it's Halloween. They're like, we can make you go home. I'm like, yeah, I'll go home. So, <laughs> so it was it. Got, went home. And that was the, that, ha- and it happened subsequently the following year as well. I again put the Michael Myers mask on, walk around the neighborhood. Police pulled up, said, you're too scary. Please go home twice we can make you go home i'd love it i feel that's a, a badge of honor in my opinion now didn't you wear that also in college? i did you i mean i've seen you in the costume i've had several so the masks don't make it very long if anybody who's owned any amount of latex masks who actually wear them they are they do not withstand the test of time if you just put them on a shelf they usually hold up longer but if you wear them and you get sweating or whatever they fall apart pretty quickly. So I think masking, by the time you would have seen my Halloween mask in college, it would have been probably the third version of the mask I owned. I now have another one that is also totally trash. So I time to get a new one. So there you go. I'll be on like my fifth or something like that. Great stuff. Great story. Great answers to the rapid fire questions. Bill Bant, are we ready to keep this train rolling? Yeah, let's get into it. Patrick, what 80s movies did you choose for us to discuss today? Oh, I brought along with us fellas here from the vault, the film from 1984, Silent Night, Deadly Night, directed by Charles Sellier Jr., screenplay by Michael Hickey, a great cast, but I'm going to spotlight a few standouts, Lillian Chauvin as Mother Superior, Britt Leach as Mr. Sims, and what was his first role ever, Robert Brian Wilson as the murderous Billy. Now, when we were putting notes together for this thing, one of the things was like, hey, if there's any awards for this movie, talk about that quick imdb search reveals that this film has won zero awards and yes i'm as shocked as all of you that's and not even like a weird horror movie award or something which is, seems crazy to me because there's like a million awards but nothing so i think maybe we could give it the first award we could come up with something tonight before we wrap it up here something that the all of these movie podcasts can bestow upon silent and deadly night as an award i don't know what it's going to be but we can probably figure it out yeah we can probably figure it out so silent night deadly night so what is this movie about What's on the box? You grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie. You would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. Bearing the emotional scars of a young boy who has seen his mother and father brutally murdered by a savage killer in a Santa Claus costume, 18-year-old Billy explodes into a lethal frenzy. He's asked to put on a Santa Claus suit himself to entertain the customers of the department store where he works. Reminded of the tragic events that have marked his life, Billy embarks on a killing rampage that is as ghastly and controversial as anything ever seen on film. 
Silent Night, Deadly Night, is the movie they tried to stop you from seeing, and it's now in its original and uncut version. Recommended for mature audiences only, but not to be missed. Santa's here. He knows when you've been naughty. Silent Night, Deadly Night. I think that should win the award. The read of the back of the box. Can we do a back of the box awards? The hosted by Jason Masick. That's pretty oh, good. He would clean house. By the way, department store. That's bullshit. It's a toy store. I wrote that. Oh, completely. And I'm glad you called that I'm out. I'm calling it out right now. Because Fire that copywriter. You would get a kick out of this in particular. First of all, Patrick Duty is a very talented voiceover artist himself. And I appreciate you because when I we did Maniac Cop, Classic. I was talking about how, and you you would be very in tune with this, listening to the trailers for 80s horror mil- films in particular, you've done your own cuts, which have been very creative. You posted them on Twitter. I recommend anybody go into Pat's Twitter page. You can plug that later, but checking out some of your editing skills. But you know how the voiceover artists are different and they can be very like truncated or, or staccato sometimes or drawn out. Right. Uh, and there's just different styles. And it's just fun to play with that stuff, man. It's a clean, but some it's a clean read. Reading and a clean read. Transcribing these, in particular, the 80s style of writing the VHS box blurbs. Yeah. They're very specific. They use a lot of hyphens. Everything's over hyphenated in these descriptions. And they get the facts of the movie wrong. Often. They probably don't watch the movie. When the copywriters just were like, hey, listen, here's, a, just, here's some information about this movie. Fill in the blanks. Yeah. And the guy's like, I don't know, it's a department store. Well, who's going to care? They're just going to rent the movie because of the bloody axe on the cover anyways. Yeah, but in fact, you are correct. It is not a department Lies. store. It is Iris Toys. Lies. Iris Toys. <laughs> Amazing. Let's get it right. Amazing. All right, so Patrick, we know you are a huge fan of this movie. Uh, so why don't you let our audience know a little background, um, your attachment to this cult holiday horror classic, Silent Night, right. Deadly Night. All right. Well, uh, for those who are interested, it, it goes back quite a ways. So it's a journey. So get ready to go on a journey. So basically the film, I was nine when the movie came out, right? So I absolutely remember the commercials. I mean, vividly, I can remember watching the commercials on my TV and that shot, there's a shot of the, what ends up being the, the robber, the armed Santa. There's a shot of him pulling the gun out of his pocket, which is like clearly Santa Claus's pocket. And that was in the trailer. People always talk about the axe on the wall being really iconic from the trailer, but the gun getting pulled out of the Santa pocket, that one really stuck with me as a kid. Now, of course, I didn't see the film at the time. And now we know now that like two weeks later, the film was out of the theater anyway. So there would have been no way for me to see it regardless, nine years old, not nine years old. So years went by. I ended up becoming a massive horror fan, film fan in general through my brother. And this film was never part of that growing up. I never discovered it. I never saw it. I never saw it on cable or HBO or anything like that. It wasn't until about 10 years later, living in Miami after film school around 95, I just rented a bunch of VHS horror films during Christmas and I rented Silent Night, Deadly Night. I thought, well, I'm finally going to give this movie a shot. I remember it as a kid. And I love the film so much that it became this annual viewing in my apartment, Miami apartment. And then I had people come over the next Christmas and bring beer and pizza and stuff like that. We'd watch this and we we watched Die Hard, right? So we watched Silent Night, Deadly Night, and Die Hard. So this is the thing in Miami. And it was myself and Chris Valenziano, the other UM guy. We would do that in Miami. We then brought that to L.A. when we came to L.A. in 99. We started doing that same party at his small apartment on Whitley. And then when I got married, my wife was like, people like want to just have a Christmas party and not have to come to Chris's apartment and sit around and watch four hours of movies. <laughs> She's like, but... Why don't you get a venue where you can play the movie and then people come over to the venue and then they could like watch the movie and hang out and have a party. So 
it became a thing. We started doing the Silent Night, Deadly Night Die Hard Christmas Party, and we had it at the Hollywood Billiards, and Massac was there for those. And we would rent a room there, and we they would have the big screen TVs, and we'd bring our DVDs of the movie. And it was awesome. It would be pretty crowded. For a couple of years, we did that when we had the time to do it. And then we stopped doing that. Which was unfortunate, but we did it for, we had it for about 10 years. We did this between uh, Miami and Hollywood. And then uh, Massac, you actually rocked the air hockey table that one year at the Hollywood Billiard. He was playing against Carlos Bernard from 24, who came to the party one year, which was like our big. I was <laughs> telling Bill just last our night. Big celebrity, our big celebrity visit. Nicest guy, had a great time. He's like, why am I with these people? But he had a blast. Anyways, cool. a few years ago, Beyond Fest, which is run by my friend Christian Parks, did a big screening at the Egyptian, and it was kind of insane. I had only had this event on my own with Chris, and no one had really known what the film was except for people who showed up at this party that we had, and they were like, oh, I guess I remember this movie. But now at the Egyptian, it was like this huge screening of the film because there was a record release of the soundtrack put out by Death Waltz. So to time with this record release, Beyond Fest had a screening of the film they had the cast come down and it was packed with people who all love this movie who I didn't know existed. And I got to meet Robert Brian Wilson. He signed my record and I told him all about the parties I had back in the 90s of showing this film. And he was like, he kind of had no clue. According to like the interview he had when he got on stage, which was phenomenal. You know, he made this movie and then he didn't really pursue a career in acting. And the film kind of became this cult status and he didn't really realize the sort of impact the film had in the horror film world. So he was like kind of coming in this whole screening with fresh eyes, seeing all these people who were rabid fans of the film. And he was like really, you could tell he was really blown away and like it really impacted him. And he was really nice. And the guy who plays uh, Mr. Sims was there. I got to meet him. And this the composer of the soundtrack was there, signed my vinyl. So anyways, it was like this really incredible night. And, you know, you guys are like pretty big Star Wars nerds, right? So certainly bigger than I am. And But, you know, when you go to an event and it's all those people and then the people who are, who make the film are there. It just kind of transcends what's on the screen, right? The film is itself within the 90 minutes to two hours of the movie, and we all love this movie. But then, like, you go to a thing, and there's people there. They love the film, and they love the sequels and the world and the music and everything about it. And then you're kind of, like, all together. So collectively, it becomes this much larger thing than itself, you know, which is what I think is the most enjoyable thing about fandom of these fun movies is that people go and they just have a great time. It's a very long history with the film. I still watch the film every year. I was looking at all the Silent Night, Deadline, and shit I have around my place, and I think I have, I mean... I told you guys Dawn of the Dead is my favorite movie. I have a lot of Dawn of the Dead stuff. I have equally probably the same amount of Silent Night, Deadly Night stuff between the Laserdisc, releases, you know, the VHS, the game. We'll talk about that a little later. And a couple other things like I've got a lot of <laughs> got a lot of Silent Night, Deadly Night stuff, too. So. So, yeah, it's definitely been a part of my uh, my horror fandom. And I still I still stand by it. It's a great film. Patrick, thanks for sharing. Jason, do you have any initial thoughts about Silent Night, Deadly Night you want to share? I got plenty of initial thoughts, Bill Bant. Thanks for asking. No problem. And Patrick, thanks for sharing your history. Okay, hmm. Let me first say I was looking forward to watching this film because I knew I was going to have fun diving into it with my good friends, Bill Band and Patrick Duty. Beyond that, needless to say, here's an initial thought. This film is upsetting. <laughs> and thanks, sweet baby Jesus, I did not see this as a kid, just like Patrick said he had not seen it as a child. I was too young, around the same age. I did not see this as a teenager or as a young adult. Now, I digress for a moment and 
Again, my nostalgic attachment to the film is directly related to Patrick and our friend Chris Flenziano. Both of you, by the way, way uh, our listeners do know we've mentioned you many times no, already you. on this Appreciate pod. It. So I think our listeners are at least somewhat familiar with the both of you. Love it. Hi, listeners. It's funny. I was talking to Bill. I couldn't remember the street that Chris lived on. I knew it started with a W. I thought it was, what did I say? Whittier, I think, but it's it was Whitley. Whitley. Oh, Whitley. And that's the first time I was exposed to this film. And I did see it in just bits and bloody pieces. There was the party atmosphere going on, so I didn't get to really soak it up in its entirety. But uh, I remember the tradition and going to the Hollywood Billiards, and it was just a great time. Now, thankfully, I have been able to give my undivided attention to this disturbing, cheesy, hilarious, gory mess. Usually, I start my initial thoughts by mentioning some of the main players, but thankfully, Patrick took care of that for us. So I love the running time of this film. An hour and just under, what, 25 minutes? I mean, short and bloody sticky sweet. Love the image on the poster of Santa's arm still sticking out of the chimney holding the bloody axe. If you're a fan of this movie, that is an iconic image. It's just a great, great poster image. I love the setup for this film. It's very dark. It's stark. I love the setting, the feeling of the middle of nowhere Utah. And we're introduced to the Chapman family and what seems to be loving parents to a five-year-old Billy and a little one-year-old Ricky as they drive to see their grandpa. It's what you do during the holidays. You go to visit family. But as soon as we understand that grandpa is staying in a mental facility, it all goes straight to hell. The Utah mental facility, which is a great name for a facility. The one 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 mental facility in the entire state of Utah. It's not even like the, the Johnson and Hopkins, you know, it's this Utah mental facility. Right. Or what town are they in again? Bart? Bart, Bartleyville, Bar- Bar- Bart- Bart- Bartlett's Field. Field, Bartlett's Field, yes, Bartlett's Field Mental Facility. No, it's the uh, the UMF, yeah. the U- U- Utah Mental Facility. We're going to come back and talk about those parents, by the way, because I don't think they're as innocent as uh, as everybody says they are. Oh, great, Ellie, Ellie, and uh, Jim Chapman. Uh-oh. Now, I suppose, really, my main initial thought is how effective the setup is. Immediately turns the fantasy of Santa Claus on its head, and instead of focusing on the reward of being good all year, this is focusing on a child having this fear of being punished for being bad, and then literally sees his worst nightmare play out in front of him when his parents are murdered or, quote-unquote, punished by killer violent criminal Santa. That's it. As an audience member, I can only think of how scared I would have been had I been that kid. It freaks me out a little bit, even now as an adult. So for the next 20 minutes of the living nightmare for this poor son of a bitch, Billy Chapman, who at five years old endures the tragedy of losing his parents, then only to end up in St. Mary's Orphanage at eight years old and having to endure the domineering and frightening discipline of Mother Superior. Watching Billy endure his childhood trauma is scary and it's horrific. And you develop this empathy for this kid. You really do. And you see why he becomes who he becomes. So I enjoyed the cold open and going into the first act. But here's another initial thought. I need to remember to skip the orphanage stuff upon repeat viewing. Don't need to watch that again. Bothers you that much? What happens there for 10 years? We see him dealing with the torment of having just witnessed, by the way, two randos having sex in the orphanage. They seemingly like a couple of 25-year-olds. I don't understand. There's like kids in there and then there's like very young adults living there. Hey, that's a question I should have written down is, yeah, what's what's the when do you age out of the orphanage? Foster care typically age out at 18. So I'm not sure what's okay. going on with that. And Billy obviously is living there all the way to 18. Like no one ever came to adopt poor Billy and Ricky out of the orphanage. They had to live their whole lives. But there's people having sex there. He ends up witnessing that, obviously gets a beating of his life on that last shot. And then suddenly it's 10 years later. There's a major gap. Quite a time jump for <laughs> I, Yeah, we got, we've got questions. We may, we may delve into that further later on. So uh, with some more initial thoughts, 
After that, you know, this is a pretty straightforward slasher film with some really solid kills and great bloody makeup effects. I appreciate the simplicity once the backstory has been established. An 18-year-old Billy becomes triggered. It's killing time. Let the bodies hit the floor. We don't need to know where Billy lives now, who his friends are, or what he does with his free time. We only know that Sister Margaret still cares for him and his well-being, and that's about it. Billy literally goes wandering around town killing naughty people until he makes his way back to the orphanage. I mean, what else do you want? Is anything else necessary? Don't ask questions. Sit back, relax, enjoy some 80s tropes, some 80s boobs, and inventive kills. So overall, I liked it. Again, creepy start, disturbing orphanage sequence. After that, it's pretty fun. Lastly, the music in this is messed up, man. Where did they get these songs? Santa's watching the warm side of the door. Classic. That montage may be the most disturbing sequence of the entire film. That's one of my favorite scenes that I've been talking about. I can't wait for you to talk. We can talk about Morgan Ames as well, the composer of the music. Outstanding. So even the the little children's Christmas song over the title card at the opening, the Christmas Caroler song. I'd never even heard that. I'm going okay. I've never heard these songs before. They don't feel right to me and my stomach doesn't feel good. So this film ultimately was effective for me. Those are my initial thoughts. Bill Bant, it's all you, brother. All right. So Jason, like you, Pat had introduced me to this movie because I did go to one of your Christmas events and it was at Little Bar. Which one did you go to? Oh, at at Little Bar. So that one, I should have mentioned too, one of our other big celebrity guests was Ken Faree came to the one the year at the Little Bar, which is right when uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween had come out because the commercials for Halloween were playing all inside the bar and they always had that shot of Ken in the scene in the bathroom where he fights Michael Myers in the toilet, which is like in, the, in the truck stop toilet where he's like, I'm working off a burrito. And he's like, has this incredible fight with Myers. And it you know, kind of goes down in a blaze of glory. But uh, yeah, Ken was at that one. And I had forgotten you came to that one, Bill, but that was one of the last ones we did at little bar. That was our last one. Yeah. And I remember coming in and the movie was playing and I'm thinking, what the hell is this? I've, I have no idea what the hell this is. And when I asked you what you were showing, I mean, your eyes lit up because you were so excited. You're like, I'm going to make a new convert. And you explained the whole movie to me in about five (laughs) minutes and just everything you knew about it, all the background. I don't, I'm surprised by that at all. And that, that was my first taste of Silent Night, Deadly Night. Is it really? That's the first time you saw it was at that event. Both of you guys have been introduced to this movie via me and and Chris Valenziano. That is correct. Hilarious. Amazing. (laughs) You're better for it as far as I'm concerned. I remember a little bit about the controversy about it when it came out. I didn't realize it had gotten pulled from the theaters. That's how bad it was. But I just remember yeah. it was the uproar about it because it was a killer Santa and the, the fact they were showing commercials during. It was the commercials that did it. It, was yeah. the, it wasn't even the film. It was people just annoyed that they ran commercials during football games mm-hmm. in, the, in the afternoon during family viewing, which was probably a, a ploy to get people to be outraged. Yeah, unfortunately, it backfired on them. So watching this. I think the big surprise to me is how much it almost touches on mental health when mental health wasn't a thing there in the 80s. Like we didn't really talk about it that much. And now it's so huge. And so I was like, wow, this movie in a way almost kind of resonates now because here's a character who goes through this traumatic experience and is crying for help. And that help is being denied by this mother superior who thinks she's just going to do these forceful things to this kid thinking she's helping and all she's doing is hurting and he's making it worse. And we see what the outcome of this is. He becomes a killer. So I thought that was kind of interesting watching this movie now. Like, wow, this movie would almost work better if it came out now than it did then. Like Jason, the songs, like I'm listening to him going, wait, is this a real Christmas song? 
why have I never heard this before? That was just bizarre. Oh, Mother Superior. I'm Catholic. I grew up Catholic. Yeah, me too. She's like every nun we ever had. Oh, yeah, exactly. I just wanted (laughs) her to get her comeuppance in the end. I was so mad that nothing happened to her. I was just like, please, please get her. She deserves this. This is all her fault. (laughs) I I couldn't believe how angry I got. But um, you're really laying that out there. Oh, yeah. I was having flashbacks to grade school, let me tell you. The, the, the thing that just cracked him up about this movie is how everything just happens abruptly. We have Billy's initial killings in Ira's toy shop, and then all of a sudden we see two people making out on a pool table. And I'm like, what? wait, what does this have to do with the next thing? And then all of a sudden we have a scene where two kids decide to go sledding. And I'm like, wait, what What does this have to do with the... It was so weird how things just jump. There's no kind of flow in it whatsoever. Like, why does Billy pick that one house to decide to come in and he's going to kill the the making out couple? I don't know. It was just that kind of stuff I found. He really... knew they were being naughty. He sees he, Santa Claus. He knows he has the power to know who's being naughty. I guess so. They weren't watching the kid. You know, they were like, they're supposed to be babysitting her sister. But what, yeah, what was the sixth sense? Like, we don't see him even like passing the house or anything. To, no, to we decide. don't. He just goes <laughs> yeah, smashing he just, in. He just comes smashing That's in. That's the I'm greatest saying. balsa wood door in the history oh, of movies. It's like, <laughs> I mean, it is spectacular. Oh. <laughs> no wonder they're so cold in there. That door uh, held, held back no heat. No, exactly. See, my t- yeah, my take on it was that once he's triggered, then he's off. It doesn't matter. We don't need to know the why or whatnot. He has a sixth sense then. He also has super strength, apparently. And oh, yeah. I can oh, yeah. When he picks up the, the woman, the girl's body right through the antlers and the wall. Yeah. Right. That Even takes before a, that, that takes when he kills Andy at Ira's Toys and he picks him up by one hand. He's got that great pose, yeah. picking him up by the neck by one hand. Anyway, uh, doesn't, doesn't he has snap that the lights either. sense of, uh, of uh, he's a sin seeker. And he just goes around town and he can just sense that sin is being committed and they must be punished. And then I was trying to think of the last time we had a slasher that was that young. And all I could think of was Scream. And then, of course, Michael Myers, he does his first kill when he's a small child. But then he grows up and then starts killing again. But I couldn't think of anyone like an 18-year-old going around killing everyone like that. I don't know. That really fascinated me for some reason. It's interesting because it was obviously, hey, Halloween was a huge hit and then Friday the 13th. And it's like, so let's capitalize on some sort of day that we can hang our hat on this horror idea. And of course, Christmas being the holiest of all makes a lot of sense. And it's not the only horror film to come around. Black Christmas had been around, which is another great Christmas horror movie. But I do love that they spend so much time giving you this backstory relative to like a lot of films where like without giving away too much in the Friday the 13th, for those who haven't seen it, there's a little backstory there as to why what's going on. But here it's like, there's quite a confluence of events. The fact that Grandpa plants the seeds and live on the same night. Right. It's weird because you you almost sympathize with them. Yeah, you do sympathize. I mean, that, by the way, the kid who plays little Billy in there is actually, that's an incredible performance. I, I mean, he's I really adorable. And it's like I that it, in my notes. right? I yeah. mean, it's really quite astonishing how good that kid was. And like, I really felt bad for him. And it is a pretty gruesome scene. But let's just talk about that uh, petty criminal. Like that guy goes from zero to 60. He goes to rob a dude. He ends up killing a guy at a gas station, and he he ends up going into basically a murderous rape rampage. I'm like, the psychology of this guy was like he was he, he was pretty lunatic to begin with, but he was pretty unhinged. Yeah, he was pretty unhinged. It's like it's not like a guy's like I'm lousy thirty bucks, Merry Christmas or whatever. It's like now I'm going to go rape somebody. It really like just pushes all the buttons of like the terror of what's out in the world that's out to get you, right? So that plays so well into probably a lot of '80s fears about 
the criminal element walking the streets that you can never trust. And then all that stuff happens to Billy all in a matter of like an hour. <laughs> I put the $31 in the inflation calculator to see what that yeah. was. And it's like yeah. $220. I'm like, hey, you didn't do too bad. $31 yeah, in on, 1971. You know? Why are you so pissed? Awesome squib work on that uh, guy too, by the way. Like the biggest belly of squib when he gets shot. Oh, yeah. It's like it's like it's the like, giant blocks under <laughs> his shirt. Ridiculous. And by the way, the aging thing, like Sister Margaret never ages. Like in that ten oh, years. Oh no, no, you do the ten year like, jump and they're all okay. <laughs> yeah. Great skin. Only only Great skin. only Billy ages. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, I don't even think his brother ages correctly. No, not oh no, not really. He should be a little bit older At than the you end. Are. He's supposed to be fourteen, and he's he looks like he's nine. <laughs> nutty amazing all right so let's uh let's move on to favorite scenes or moments from silent night deadly night uh moments can be an easter egg joke a certain shot cameo montage music etc and scenes are well a scene from the movie so patrick why don't you start us off what is one of your favorite scenes or moments from silent night deadly night we mentioned it already but the montage of warm side of the door is probably my favorite scene in the whole film <laughs> I had that down too. It's a great scene. It's, it, by the way, it's, it's two minutes long. I mean, they just, they're like, they, they do it. They're going to be like, we're going to have a montage. We're going to play this whole piece of music that was written for the film. And we're going to tell an entire story. And cause it's a passage of time, right? Cause we figure Billy gets this gig well before Christmas time and he's, you know, moving up the corporate ladder of the Sims empire. By the way, let's just talk about that for a second. Mr. Sims is friend. No one. Mr. Sims is like, you know, William Randolph Hearst of toys in, in this town or whatever. It's like, it's a dumpy little toy store. And the Andy is like, you want to be on the good side of Mr. Sims. But regardless, we, so we go through this whole life of, of in the, in the side of this Mr. Sims store and they play that music. We talked about this music being like all this Christmas music. So we'll talk about this a little later, but we'll talk about Morgan Ames who wrote all the Christmas music for the movie. And there's an interesting story behind what was supposed to happen with that music down the road. Um, so I love that scene. I like it because it's totally played in earnest. It goes right into the first time we see Billy as an eight, as a grown up. The guy doesn't want him. He's like, I'm sorry, I can't take a child. She's like, oh, not a child. Here's this handsome fella. And he's like, hi, I'm big and bulky and beautiful. And then the guy's like, oh, indeed, you can come work at my store. Things are looking up for Billy. The thing that makes this movie really work is that nowadays, if you made like a throwback movie or an 80s throwback movie, or whatever, we throw it in with a bunch of tropes and we would like wink and nod at the audience. But there's nothing that's winking and nodding the audience. They're like, the director's like, no, I'm going to put a song, a heartfelt song. It's going to be a montage. It's going to be played in earnest. And this is really going to happen. Then we're going to see the story. And it's not like there's no tongue in cheek irony to the way it's played. It's played totally real, which is why it makes it so enjoyable because it's not, they're just being like, this is, this is, this is a real moment here. We're trying to give you a real emotion. And it's got gusto and it's earnest. And then Andy's drinking the booze and Billy's got the milk. Uh, which is a great thing. You know, it's like, it has great moments. And the other thing I love about it is that it is this amazing time capsule for toy stores in the early 80s. Like, oh, yeah. they have great, I mean, the, the job of the hut palace on the background, just some great shots. And it's funny now because you could never get away with, let's just put whatever toys we have around and then we're going to have blood all over them. Like, you know, obviously they didn't care then or they, if they did, they figured no one's going to come after us. But that, I, to me, is one of the hallmark moments of the film. And I think anybody knows the movie would, they know that song, they sing that song. It's an iconic moment within the film. And I just love it for it being so unabashedly what it wants to be. It doesn't pull any punches. It's like, we're going to do it. We're going to fully go for it. And that's why I think it's a great scene. Pat, I was 100% with you on that one. I love that scene. And like I said, the toys, there's He-Man, there's Star Wars, there's Smurfs, there's Muppets. Like, yeah, you could not get away with that now. No, 
<laughs> no, I mean, it's amazing. You know, they did, and same thing, we'll talk about Dawn of the Dead real quick in the mall. Like, they just shot in the mall. I mean, there's, you can see every single mall department store, every single mall store in that mall that's like, there's mayhem and madness everywhere. And there's like JCPenney logos and everything. It's crazy what you get away with. So before our society became super litigious or before they worried about claims, they were just like, yeah, it's a toy store. Like, we're not focusing on the toys. So therefore, it plays as background. I suppose if someone decided to take the job of the hot toy and shove it in someone's eye, then maybe they would be more concerned about it. But as a Toy Story background, but it is a great moment if you're an 80s kid to see all that stuff. And by the way, I love those kind of toy stores. I don't know, in Chicago where I grew up, there was a great toy store on Devon Avenue called Cut Rate Toys. I mean, it's like famous Northside Chicago toy store. It is literally just a giant room with just stacks of toys. It does not look like a Toys R Us. There's no beautiful branding or whatever. It's just buckets and bins of toys for really cheap oh yeah it's the same shelving you find at like home depot yeah and I, lo- I those were my favorite kind of toy stores growing up you don't really see well you don't have toy stores anymore anyways but just shelves of toys and it's just kind of haphazardly thrown together which is such an other great thing of the 80s that i think a lot of kids don't have an appreciation for because they just don't have that experience yeah and i think the one thing i'm i was waiting for the whole time that montage has happened was just for billy to break the fourth wall and just turn to the camera and do like the thumbs up just like a Mentos moment kind of thing. I was just waiting for that. I was just getting so geeked and amped about it. Yeah, I had this down as my favorite scene, too. It's a great scene. I love both of your takes on the scene. And yes, he would be great in a Mentos commercial, actually. But yeah, the fact that you get to see the Job of the Hut action play set, which I actually did receive that year for Christmas, which was awesome. And I, I mean, I was looking at it just reminiscing and feeling the nostalgia. And there's a do-back as well, I believe, oh, yeah. on there Classic. next to one of the Job of the Hut. But I like the fact, Patrick, that you mentioned it was shot and directed in earnest. And you feel it. And one of the reasons why I actually do empathize with Billy is because he's really trying to do good. He totally is. He is. He's the all-American. He's all-American 80s kid. You nailed it. And he really is trying to do right. But this is just bad luck, Billy. Things happen, and I love within this montage when they unroll. That is great. I was going to say, banner. the acting oh, he yeah. He sees the Santa Claus on the, the turn on, the on his face. And his face it's, starts shaking. It's brilliant. And he gets serious, and he starts vibrating. It's like, oh, boy. <laughs> this poor guy just can't catch a he break. He can't catch a break. That's why it's a really interesting film. It's not like he's not born to be a killer. He's not like he they, he is becomes one as all the circumstances. And then the whole time, they're like, everybody's constantly reminding him, you know, what Santa does on Christmas. And he's like, yeah, I know. It's just like they keep... Keep constantly beating in his head. There's two things he's learned. One, Santa punishes those who's naughty. And two, that punishment is absolute. Those are the two engines that drive him. So when he's going on a murderous rampage, it's not like he's this guy who has a love of killing. Right. He is enabled to behave how he thinks he's supposed to behave as Santa Claus. And of course, they put the costume on and that's it. Then that, then he has become the full character. The transformation is complete. And that ties right back into what Bill was saying initially with this this mental health aspect. And how does that happen? Is it environment? Is it something you're born with? But in this case, it seems as total environment. He seemed like a sweet kid. He was not like a kid who was like, you know, pulling, you know, wings off of butterflies or hurting pets or his good parents. Well, we're going to talk about his parents. There's something sinister going on there. I think we're going to get to the bottom of it tonight. All right. All right. All right, Jason. Well, I have a uh, a favorite scene. Yeah, what's yours? I'm just calling this Grandpa Chapman, and I'm going to take it. So I'm going to take it a little bit back in the film. It's a little earlier on. So the Chapmans, we've just been talking about them, Ellie and Jim, the parents, along with their five year old son Billy, 
went to visit Grandpa on Christmas Eve in 1971. Unfortunately, they're not going to Grandpa's house. No, they're going to the UMF, as we'd mentioned, the Utah Mental Facility, where he is staying. Now, Dr. Conway has brought Grandpa to the recreation room, but he's not involved in any recreation at all. (laughs) What's going on in that room? Rocking chair. Grandpa's just by himself sitting in a rocking chair, catatonic, staring blankly into the void. Dr. Conway says to Jim and Ellie Chapman that he has Grandpa's records if they'd like to join him in his office to go over them. They do, leaving little Billy alone with creepy catatonic Grandpa Chapman. He won't hurt you, Billy. No, no, that's fine. That's totally normal. That's not going to scar him for life, just unto itself. Leaving your five-year-old alone with a catatonic gentleman that looks like Jed Clampett from the Beverly Hillbillies. (laughs) And, of course, Grandpa, played by the wonderful Will Hare in this uh, scene, who is... uh, He had a hell of a year that year, that actor. Oh, did he really? He was in Back to the Future. Old Man Peabody. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Yeah, what, what, I, I would say, what, what a hell of a year. Two classics forever etched in film history. <laughs> Grandpa Chapman, of course, comes out of his catatonic stage, shifts his eyes towards Billy with a little tiny smile crawling across his face, and he begins to talk. This isn't going to be good. We said this, and I wrote this down as I guess Bill did as well. Credit to young actor Jonathan Best, who plays five-year-old Billy. Amazing. He's got those big brown sympathetic eyes and plays so like that vulnerable just like you would be at that age. And man, this poor kid. So Grandpa says to Billy, and I'm paraphrasing her, you're scared, ain't you? You should be. Christmas Eve is the scariest damn night of the year. Santa Claus only (laughs) brings presents to them that's been good all year. All the other ones, all the naughty ones, he punishes. What about you, boy? You've been good all year? You see Santa Claus tonight? You better run, boy. You better run for your life. <laughs> run for your life. That's he does a, like the, it's just, the best. Yeah, it's just what the hell? So uh, what's the actor's Will name? Hare. Will Hare. His eyes are watering as if he's like about to cry, but he's got a maniacal laugh at the same time. It's a great performance. It's a bit much is what it is. Great setup for what about what's about to come next. It's, again, that convergence. Worst possible luck for this kid because this happens which instills the fear in little Billy. And then immediately afterwards, the traumatic incident occurs where his parents are killed, which just reinforces the belief that, yes, Santa punishes the naughty. Freaking grandpa. It's a crazy scene, and you know something's going to happen immediately when they leave the kid alone with grandpa. But the performance by Will Hare really drives it home, and it's just, it's creepy and effective. So I loved it. There's a little humor in there, too. It's a little kind of... There's a ton of humor in the movie, which I think is great. Great sort of breakdown of the scene. But the thing I want to talk about is there is that Grandpa says to Billy, he goes, you know what happens at Christmas Eve, don't you? You know all about Santa Santa Claus. And he says, he brings presents to good little boys and girls. He goes, your daddy told you that, didn't he? Right? So that, I think, is an important key piece of information, okay? Because here's the deal. Look, obviously, Grandpa, he can't have just conjured this notion up of that Santa punishes the naughty in a catatonic state over the course of several years where he's never spoken a word ever. They show up and it happens to be tonight where he decides to lay it on to Billy what the deal with Santa Claus is, right? Mm-hmm. And then he says, your daddy told you that, which is like a little dig at basically being like, I guarantee you, Grandpa told Dad the same story when he was a kid, right? Sure. And so basically, this dad has carried this whole burden of his father's psychosis about santa claus being a killer and so when they're in the car and then he's like he says he punishes and he's like where'd you get that idea and then the dad's like you think dad could have talked i'm like no dad knows grandpa spilled the beans 
He's now playing the seeds. He's like that crazy old fool. Like this is a long standing tradition of this family. They have been tormented by some psychotic Santa Claus thing. And we're just, this is just continuing on. And I'm telling you, the dad knows he knows it's going to come down. He knows shit's going to hit the fan. He's just playing stupid. He never told his wife about his dad's insanity about Santa Claus, but this has been going on their entire lives. And now it's happening again. I think the father is very complicit in all that's going on. Not, not the events that follow. I just think that this history with his dad, there's no way that his dad would tell the story without and, and make that comment about how his daddy told him that not having told the father years ago. So I think there's a lot more going on in this family. I think there's a fucked up family and uh, we just, we just, we just never got to the bottom of it. That's what I think. I couldn't agree more and it is deep. And that's why I was going to save it for my additional questions later in the pod, but we'll just address it now or we already have, or Patrick has, I should say. And the fact, my question was because this feels so out of the blue. Why would the grandpa, we can understand the grandpa might snap out of a catatonic state for whatever reason. We don't understand the science of the mind completely, but to tell such a specific story, obviously the grandfather had been affected some way in some shape, way or form to come to this belief that Santa punishes those. Not only does he not reward, but he actually inflicts some sort of punishment. And then it's a good call. I did not really pick up on the fact that the father then later on the car says, do you think dad talked? Knowing that the only that story would come from his no way, he's like he couldn't have been like he must have heard that story a million times as a kid. His dad doesn't talk about it now, all these years later, especially when the guy's like, "That's what your daddy said." That he probably was like trying to convince him his whole life that Santa Claus. This is probably why they put the old man in the Utah mental facility place to begin with, because and that was my question: was is what's the family history here? What is is this a story that's been passed down through generations? This is a cycle. We need to we need to do a prequel. We need to go sell a prequel. That story of. The exactly father and grandpa, yeah. I think, is what we want. We want to see how do we get to where we start this movie. The prequel ends with the Utah. Oh, Mountains. I love that they go to the facility and we see the will, and it's all digital Will Hare. We get like a, a digital recreate Will Hare. Well, the, the copy's pretty good. You could probably use the current copy of the film, but I think it goes way back. And the fact that he says something about his, his daddy told him that, I think this is like a long-standing history in this family. This dad was praying that Grandpa was going to stay catatonic and never mention this to Billy, and then he does. Dad knows telling you should have left the kid alone with grandpa i had almost put this down as one of my favorite scenes but because i had so many questions if i had asked pat about this he would explain this all to me and it would have been in my favorite scenes <laughs> but if you think about it the grandpa is probably the scariest character in the movie i think he gives the biggest scare it's kind of a freak out if you think about it well that's because i think it's it's a family member that you're supposed to trust i mean you know it's yeah. always like you don't want grandpa to be going around spreading crazy ideas in your head or or potentially being dangerous I mean, here, here was a kid 10 minutes ago was all excited about Santa Claus coming to his house, asked his parents what time he's coming. And now he's like, get that man away from me. I don't want to see him. That's scary shit. I think he's the scariest character in the movie. It's traumatic. Can you imagine? It's, it's the best fantasy you have as a child. And it's not only ruined, or but it's it's shattered and inverted on you. It's reversed. Now it's your living nightmare. It's horrible. Yeah. Kids in an orphanage, we can only assume because grandpa obviously can't take care of him, but like there's no mention of grandpa ever again in this kid's life. No. So, you know, he's got some relatives. They don't, they don't bring grandpa. They don't wheel him around to the old uh, orphanage <laughs> to, to hang out with the kids. He doesn't dress up as Santa Claus. He'd be a good Santa Claus, that guy, which is probably purposely done on the casting part of it. Uh, again, why I think there's something weird going on in that family. Maybe that guy was a homicidal Santa Claus at some point. There's some, just some, something weird in that family. It ain't right. It's not right. It's a whole other layer bringing to this movie, Patrick. I'm glad I'm glad we you. brought you on for this. <laughs>
Bill Bant, do you have a favorite scene, yeah. my friend? Yes. Yeah. So for me, Patrick mentioned my first one. So my second one is when Billy, aka Santa, Killer Santa, has the scene with Cindy. So we do this crazy jump where Billy has killed everyone in Ira's toys. And all of a sudden we jump to this house and these this Denise and I think it's Tommy are making out on the pool table and they're about to have some sexy time. And Denise decides, um, oh, I got to let the cat in and runs up there topless. You know, plenty of boobs in this movie. 80s boobs galore. And here comes Billy busting through the front door, ends up killing Denise and Tommy. And they're, you know, babysitting this little girl, Cindy. And Cindy comes out thinking, oh, hey, Santa's showed up to my house. And it's a freak out moment because you don't know what Billy is going to do to this girl. Because he asks her right away, have you been naughty? And she says, no. And he emphasizes, are you sure you haven't been naughty at all? And, you know, as an audience member, if you're watching this the first time, you're like, oh, my God, don't say yes. Please don't say yes, because Billy, he literally has an axe with him. And you're like, oh, my God, we're actually going to watch a kid get killed. And or, you know, we don't see it happen, but it's implied that he's going to kill this girl. And, you know, luckily she answers, no, I have not been naughty. And she's like, are you going to give me a present? And he reaches into his pocket. Oh, my God. He's still going to kill her. It doesn't matter. He pulls out this box cutter knife that he uses at the store and he's killed some of the employees with it. He killed Pammy. It's got their blood on it. Yeah. And he hands it to her as a present and does the most artificial smile you ever would see. And she's excited she's getting a gift. But it's, what the hell is he handing me? Like, she doesn't even know what it is. And then Billy just leaves and you're just kind of like, oh, thank God. Thank God. So I think it's the emotions that you go through watching this scene that I really liked because... This kid has had a mental break. He's going around killing people. And why wouldn't he kill a child at this point? But he but, follows um, his rules. Exactly. And that's he the thing. He follows his rules. He fo- And he does it, by the way, in the store when he kills Andy for attacking Pam. And then he's basically saving her. And he says, but I saved you. Like in his crazy mind, like he's enacting the job of the Santa who punishes. Right. And so, and so that's why I think that is the great scene because like – He's had a break from reality, but he's still following the rules that is, are created in the world of Santa Claus that only the naughty are punished. And right. And that's, that's why that's, you it's feel really, that's it's a, it's a really sense great of moment. tension because you're just like, Cindy, don't say yes that you've been naughty at all. Please don't. Because, you know, as a child himself, when grandpa asks him, have, have you been good all year? And he says yes. He's like, have you been naughty at yeah, all? He, he, and he, he goes he, once he, or twice. You know, all yeah. kids do that. So you would think yeah. the same thing, too. A child would be that honest and say, yeah, I did something wrong once. And like, oh, my God, you're going to get killed because of answering that question. I say she deserves to live then. Good, good for her. It's so tense. And then there's almost like that comedic moment where he just hands him a box cutter, a bloody box cutter. Oh, my God. Wow. That's a tough one. Great opportunity for another story, sideline stories. Cindy got the knife as a kid in 1984. What does that do to her in the 20 years later? Oh, yeah, because, I mean, again, we can now she's going to go story. downstairs and, and we see got a whole Denise. thing going on. We got we got the prequel oh, story. We we're building in a whole new cinematic universe. It would be like Annabelle, but it's just it's called Cindy, a Silent Night, <laughs> Deadly Night side story. <laughs> I love it. It's the grandpa origin story. We got a whole thing. We got to copyright all this stuff now. We got to get, get the guys in the home. Good call, Bill. Great yeah, uh, on this scene, it's because it, it's a freak out moment. It's a scary moment. He's giving a little girl a box cutter. Guys, he didn't. Ta- he, didn't ha- he didn't have anything else. He had nothing else. He had to give her something. Wow, talk about playing devil's advocate. 
Literally. He was at a toy store. He, I think he was ill-prepared. He should have packed up a bag of toys from Ira's and had something that, to hand yeah. out to people. Yeah, like Jabba's action playset. She would have loved that. By the way, how come the yeah. carolers don't get uh, slaughtered? That's what I want to know. Where, where's the slaughter? Right, the that's carolers? what confused me. I'm like, they're all out there singing across the street. Tommy was about to kill him. He, he was like, damn it. It's not preventing me from getting it Is on. This, was this movie before or after Terminator? Because that scene with Billy fighting Tommy is very terminator sure yeah with uh what's the name of the actor in terminator who was uh oh god i'm trying to think of him because he was in top yeah, Gun too. what's his name he was in roxanne i think great actor yeah when he's throwing him through the doors in the house in the apartment in sarah connor's apartment uh rick rosevich thank you rick rosevich i i didn't have to look it up i i pulled it right out rick rosevich nice. that scene reminded me of the scene with rick rosevich from terminator and I maybe wonder yeah. if Terminator had already come out. What year was Terminator? Was that eighty four? It feels like eighty four. Also. Maybe. Well, maybe. Oh, well, you know what? Cameron's Cameron stole a lot of Terminator ideas. Maybe he stole that from. Maybe he stole a copy of the script. So like, I should do this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Big Jim. He had a choice. He was looking at it like a Christmas horror movie or the Terminator. He's like, well, well, yeah. bastards already did this. Guess I'll do the Terminator. But it's a good scene. It's a good scene. And I, and I, uh, I think you know what. Good on him for uh, following the rules of Santa Claus. He, he gifted her with something, and I hope she cherished it. I hope she. Ch- I hope years later, when she's realized that she survived that night, that she uh, she realizes how it's, it's good. It's a good thing to be good. It keeps you in the straight and narrow, fellas. Yeah, you don't want Santa Claus coming to your house. No, not at all. By the way, speaking of Santa Claus coming to the houses, how about the dad who like goes through that whole rigmarole of like the ladder outside the window of his daughter's room and yeah, the what, what was the whole yeah. like who, who the fuck does that? I mean, come on. I understand you put on a show. It's pretty elaborate. Weird too. Like Santa Claus, in, it does not come into the room of a child. Like that's a weird, right? That's a weird. She's bit, supposed to be sleeping. That's just a very odd thing. Like do it down at the chimney or the tree, but like, oh, this we're going to pretend Santa's real by climbing up the window of my daughter's bedroom. Like it was all very weird. Anyways, they should have shot the dad. I think they should have just. <laughs> yeah, he deserved, he deserved it, it. <laughs> for being an yeah. idiot. For being weird. Spare the priest to shoot the dad. Poor priest O'Brien, Father O'Brien, the deaf and dumb and blind priest. <laughs> a great comedy line. If you ever watch the interview with Michael Hickey, who wrote this movie, when you hear him talk about the film, you do realize like he did write this to be extremely over the top and just a fun movie to, you know, regardless of how dark it gets. He's like, it's supposed to be really just sort of super melodramatic. And he's like playing up to all his tropes. So those kind of lines where it's like, no. He couldn't have heard them because he was he's deaf or whatever. Like that's so by design to just be such a ridiculous notion that you have to laugh at that line. It's just so so silly. Oh, so much. All One right, of my Pat, other favorite scenes. Yep. Back to scenes. Yeah. All right. So here's my other favorite scene in the movie. It's a scene with Doug and Jim and Bob and Mac, the uh the guys who are uh, sledding. Oh God! Yes, go ahead. That's that was my next. Scene. It's a great scene, and it's a great scene because um, first of all, there's a couple of reasons. It has a great kill. I mean, there's no doubt. It's like one of the yes. one of the great kills in cinematic histories. Decapitation on a sled is great. By the way, as a side note, they're treating this hill like it's the strife in Austria. They're like, oh, I know. I mean, they're like, Birth they're like snow, and it's all show what I'm going to do. It's over. like it's it's got about a one meter drop. I mean, like it's, there's it, no incline. It's no incline. It's so it's like he's like, check it out. Watch what I do. Woo! It's like it's like he's going. About Two miles an hour down this thing, you think treat it like it's a it's the slalom or something. So uh, that I think is hilarious. But aside from that kill and aside from the just ridiculousness of that moment, I love characters in we meet in horror movies. They're in the middle of whatever their relationships are, right? So 
Doug and Jim are already having their thing where one's like a smart aleck and one guy's like kind of like a little shy and demure. So you can tell the smart aleck's kind of like the leader of the two. And he's like, are you having a religious moment? Like there's just all this smart alecky dialogue. We get all these guys are buddies. Like we're just right in the middle of that. And then the guys come in. They're like, look who it is. It's Bob and Mac. And it's, oh, here come the town bullies that everybody knows. And one's like handsome looking and the other one's kind of a doofus. And he's like, I want to be like you dumb and stupid and ugly. And they just have this whole great conversation that this is just another day in the life in this small town where Doug and Jim are trying to do their thing and Bob and Matt come in and ruin their day. There could be a whole side story about these guys' lives. I just love that we're in that moment. And then they bully them and they steal their sleds, which is not really like a big bully thing to do. It's a weird, we're going to take your sleds. Okay. So that whole exchange that they have before the sled happens, I just love all that stuff because this is like, we don't waste any time learning who the characters are. We're just in the middle of the characters living their lives on Christmas Eve sledding we just know exactly who the people are i always think those are really interesting and funny scenes and they and the four actors are really good in that moment they are it's a good scene there is something that's weird in that scene is like the way that the geography does not make any sense the two kids run off so they don't witness the murder then bob whichever one's bob and mac he goes to the top of the hill comes down then he's like you come on down and then he's coming down what seemingly like is about 10 feet from him but he never sees billy jump in front of him like he just sees the the decapitated head come down. So he never witnesses the, the heading, but he didn't look that far away from it. Did he not see Billy jump out in the middle of the sled and kill him? And also, why does Billy leave someone alive? Like, why doesn't he also kill that other kid? Yeah, I was waiting for that. I was waiting, You're waiting for, for that, that moment. Yeah. And then there's a scene in the police station where the cop was like half in the bag. All bad news, sister. We've got five more bodies. And you realize the, the count is everybody from Iris and then the the couple and then just the one sledder. He let the other kid go. And also it made me wonder, is the rule here, is Billy killing them because they're bullies? Would he have killed Doug and Jim if they had just been sledding without Bob and Mac? Would he have created this incredible moment to jump out from out the thing, decapitate somebody, if they had not been bullying? He does say punish when he jumps out. Yes. So I'm assuming it's like... I actually had to use the closed captioning, and it said on my screen, it said not. Oh, no, maybe it says not, yes. yeah. What, he, said, he says because one of his I couldn't tell phrases. what he said. Yeah, because he jumps out and he goes, Rawr! and I was like, what? what did he say punish? Maybe he said punish and naughty at the same time. We, I just wanted to clear that up. <laughs> so anyways, I, lo- I love that. Oh, Bob and Mac. If it isn't Bob and Mac, uh, that's one of my favorite scenes. It is a funny scene because, once again, it just comes out of nowhere. And, you know, I usually w- try to watch a movie twice for the pod. And when I was watching it the second time, I totally forgot about the scene because it comes out of nowhere. And you're like, oh, shit. Yeah, there's a whole scene in the woods. Yeah. It's like a two or three minute scene. It is. We live in the world of the longer scenes in the film. Doug and Jim and Bob and Mac. We learn a lot about these guys before one gets killed. I really respect it. I think it's a great call. I broke down this entire scene. I love this scene because it is, like you said, Patrick, it's relatable because of the characters. You can relate to these characters. You know these kids. They're relatable in the way that, yes, the dialogue is one's giving, you know, they're jabbing each other and they're kind of ribbing each other and it's the common things that kids say to one another and making fun of one another. But also there's a little bit of a stock character thing. You're like, oh, I know these guys. We've seen these characters before, especially when the, the bullies jump out. And one of my favorite parts is when they the bullies do that snickering kind of thing. They, <laughs> you know, and they literally do that. Like Bob, the the one guy, the I guess less attractive one. He looks about the, uh, thirty one years old, by the way. That guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the bad snickering by bullies in eighties movies is just an amazing thing. And one of the reasons I actually chose this is also is one of my favorite scenes is because it reminded me of an audition I had in college 
which Patrick himself thought was hilarious. Oh, I, you know what? It's so funny. I totally thought the same thing. I, t- I totally so- thought the same thing. The scene that I was auditioning for was not hilarious because I was supposed to be playing somebody who like some hick bully cheering on some poor kid. And my lines were something like this. They were like, come on, Gilly, get it. Get after it, Gilly. Woo! Come on, boy. And Patrick thought it was the funniest thing. He would have me do it all the time. And of course, it's one of those things, you know, we just run into the, in the halls and or he just yell it out of nowhere and just be like, Woo! come on, come on, Gilly. And so when I saw the guys, it, it totally is that scene when they're like, woo, woo. <laughs> so when I see these bullies and they're like, let's get on the sled and go. And they're like, woo, woo, go. Yeah, woo. I'm just like, oh, my God. It's ridiculous. Yeah. They're talking. They're, they, they are treating that, that hill like it's like. Uh, I know. You speed know. up the film. At least speed up the film. <laughs> One of the funniest lines in the film is when the, I, I'm going to call him Mac, this taller, skinnier bully, hesitantly gets on the toboggan and says, what if I hit a tree? I know. That's so great. He's like, he's going to go about two miles an hour. <laughs> I think you'll see it come. Yes, on the virgin snow, when he's coming down a makeshift path, you already see <laughs> that someone's <laughs> running down it. Great call, Bill. Great call, Bill, because that's, <laughs> that's like hilarious. what they say in the beginning. Oh, it's, it's virgin. It's virgin hill. Oh, I see. But you're saying you can see the tracks left over from the amount of takes they've done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's amazing. I did not notice that. That's hilarious. It's a great scene, and it is uh, one of two of the great kills in the it movie. Is the, the, the beheading. Great beheading. And the, I mean, that's the headless body coming down on the toboggan sled, the head rolling down the hill, and then the the uh, Mac, the bully, just freaking out. Oh my god, God! Oh god, he's dead! And of course, the great shot of then Billy standing in the snow with the, the blood dripping off the axe. You have the contrast and color the red on the white it's a great great scene and a fun memory for me from a college audition and something i share with patrick duty <laughs> yeah oh, yeah Woo. oh my god <laughs> all right jason we're on to you favorite <laughs> moment i'll make this quick since i i just kind of shared that scene with patrick uh, my backup favorite scene then was because i like the pacing and the feel of this is when i believe is it officer barnes classic character towards the end after he's uh shot poor father o'brien dead uh who was the deaf santa claus well he's now been charged with protecting the kids at saint mary's orphanage yeah, nice protocol they know that yeah. <laughs> nice police <laughs> protocol you kill an innocent guy all right just stay, stay where you are and keep protecting people and by the way, we're not going to evacuate these kids. No. We know there's a killer no. approaching. No we're investigation. Have the kids stay just, there. Just take off the dead body. Don't worry. The kids have not been traumatized watching someone get shot. It's all good. Everybody's fine. We're going to sing some Christmas carols. Anyway, Officer Barnes decides to uh, to walk the perimeter. So I, I kind of, I like this. I like this because this is what I liked with the sound design. What they did was they had the kids singing the Christmas carols and it's echoing through like kind of the windows out to the exterior where you have Officer Barnes walking the perimeter of this orphanage, which is very isolated, which I also like. You know, that's scary. That was cool. Itself it was is cool cool like out in the middle of nowhere. And so he's walking through the snow and then he looks off to the side, which seems to be, it looks like a woodshed at first. And the door is opening and swinging. All I can think of it at that moment, I said to myself, Woodshed, like little evil dead action. He, of course, decides to go investigate and he goes in. Then it leads downstairs into, is it supposed to be like a furnace 
room? Is that what it was? I don't even know what it is. What I like about this, and it's done, it was done in Friday the 13th. Bill and I talked about one of the nice film techniques that they use where it's all tension building. Nothing actually happens. It's all about the anticipation of something happening. So Officer Barnes goes down the stairs, goes into that furnace like boiler room type area, does a full 360. And we follow him all the way around as he's investigating with his gun drawn, waiting for the killer Santa to appear. Nothing happens. He goes back up the stairs and they lull you into a sense of security and safety because the music cue is this jingly bell, like very peaceful song. And then it's the classic, the axe comes flying in and nails him in the chest. Killer Santa, Billy Chapman takes out Officer Barnes. And that was a pretty well-paced, tension-building sequence. Even Barnes, when he's at the top of the stairs, is like, okay, I'm safe now. He like he gawks up. He's like, yeah. oh, it, another day in the police department where I murder deaf priests. But I'm going to make it through. <laughs> There'll be no IA, no internal investigation for this. I'm just going to, it's going to be a clean kill. A clean kill. We couldn't, he couldn't have helped it. He couldn't have helped it at all. That's great. Um, but yeah, that's all I had for, for that scene, scene I believe. Yeah, because you really think it's set up that, oh, this is where Billy's been living. It's not established mm. where he's at. And then just like, oh, that's oh, interesting. Be- I never I never thought about that, that that's where like he. Uh- yeah, because if he grew out of the orphanage, per se, he has, has to be somewhere. So I'm I assuming he's that's well, where he's going to be. Gl- oh, I see. You're saying when he's when he's killer. That's Billy. what I was investigating that. I mean, he's well, only been killing Billy for like but also, 24 where hours. Was, the question is, where was he living I think, after I think, he aged I think, out? I don't think he's aged out there yet. there is one... Okay, well, there is one shot of him when he awakens from... Because he's... when uh, Earlier, when he's working at Iris Toys, he's imagining having sexual relations with Pamela. Pammy. And then he awakes from the nightmare in bed in a room and cowers in the corner saying, I'm trying to be good. I think that's the orphanage. Isn't that know, the orphanage? Is that supposed I to be? No, it's different because it's all orphanage. wood paneling. It looks totally yeah. different. Yeah. Maybe he, maybe he's on the third floor. <laughs> yeah, maybe. That's possible. <laughs> That's the third floor rooms, guys. We don't see that rooms because it, that'll be another side story film we'll develop where, just about where but, where did he end up? What house? What was his housing situation? So in your in in that version of it, you're saying he basically he aged out because if if you age out in the current foster care system. At 18, it's like, if you do not have anybody to take care of you, they literally just put your stuff in a bag and off you go. And so let's follow that thread. So basically, he's 18, he ages out, he's now living at some, you know, above a bar somewhere in downtown Heber, Utah, or whatever. And then, uh, what, Sister Margaret's sure. still invested in his life, so she's like kind of helping him yeah, out. She's helping him All with right, the I job buy, placement. I, I buy it, I buy it. I guess they just wanted to avoid that and be like, well, we're not going to have an apartment for Billy. So is he able to support himself on the salary of a stock boy at uh, Iris? I mean, listen, he's a, he's a friend of no man, Mr. Sims. So he's a he's a ruthless toy dealer. I'm sure the cost of living Utah. in Utah is not as bad as you know. In eighty four, probably, yeah. probably not, not yeah. too bad. It's probably probably very affordable. And he doesn't we, he doesn't drink, so he doesn't have a lot of vices for things he speaks. He doesn't smoke. He doesn't drink. So he's not like yeah. blowing money on stuff. So he's mm-hmm. just probably living living at his means. Yeah. But I do like the, that, Bill, your thought was possibly in that scene with Officer Barnes walking around the f- orphanage towards the end that when he sees the door swinging open to that downstairs, whatever area that may have been like his lair. Correct. That's a cool idea that that could have been Billy's, like he's living down in the boy. But would he, he, so would he have been living there before he became Evil Santa? That's what I thought. It was just, 
Oh, that's a pretty interesting. They they never saw him in the morning, like awaken from the boiler room outside. Like Sister Margaret's like, Billy, I brought your breakfast. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> All right. All right. Margaret, I, I, deleted just had some stats I like there. Of yeah. she just, you know, she has a soft spot for him. So let's see if we can get Michael Hickey on the program next time and he can maybe fill in some of the blanks for us. Yeah, let's do that. Bill, did you have another favorite scene, man? <laughs> no, I think we covered everything. Like I said, one of the things I just loved was uh, just seeing the toy store and just so many toys. I was like, oh, my God, I remember that or I had that or it was just kind of fun just spotting all that stuff. Yeah, Absolutely. I don't want to anger any fans out there. There's a lot of great moments in this film. And uh, we mentioned the one great kill of the beheading on the toboggan sled. Classic. Bill was talking about the great moment when Killer Santa Billy uh, hands the box cutter to little Cindy. But previous to that, I mean, one of the great kills and probably iconic most, maybe most iconic moment. I know you tell us, Patrick, is when Killer Santa impales Denise upon the antlers. Well, the, it's uh, a historic moment because it stars that moment is with Linnea Quigley and she's like one of the genuine scream queens from the eighties horror movies. I mean, it's been oh, yeah. all time great. So for her, that's just like another, another list of amazing moments she's been in throughout her whole career of incredible films. I think that alone, it's a huge deal because it stars her and she's so famous in the horror fandom. There you go. Yeah. Just wanted to give that a quick shout out. Didn't want our fans to think we had glossed no, over. No, no, we never gloss over Linnea Quigley. Not possible. <laughs> okay, so moving on to our Swiss cheese and complaint department. Complaints. And why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie may be delicious, it certainly has holes. What plot holes, bloopers, or general complaints would you like to file with our complaint department? Bill, why don't you start us off this time? Okay, so Christmas Eve, Mr. Sims throws a big party. There's... Six employees. What the hell happened to the two cashiers? I love that. The hot and, and the and the middle aged guy. Yes. Where did they Where go? Where did they go? Again, survivors of the great massacre. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. We see them. We see her at some point, like punching her time card in the montage. By the way, incredible moment punching a time card. I believed that she was an employee at that store punching a time card. I bought her movement. Her whole masterful control. Like, I want like the way she was bringing up customers. I mean, I I believe she worked there, but yeah. So her and then the dude. There there are two other store employees that don't end up getting killed. They don't stick around. So did they go hook up? That whole scene makes no sense. Like he's like, time to get shit faced at seven o'clock. We're closed for the night. Is this really what we're gonna do on Christmas Eve? We're gonna party with Mister Sims at his toy store. Like that's the best we've got for Christmas Eve. They roll out like tons of booze, and he gets. Shit faced. Because it's hilarious. As soon as it's seven, the two cashiers like throw out like little tablecloths and throw it right on yeah, top of yeah, their cashier yeah. tables. They, that's great. They got the whole thing and all the cutty stark and all the booze or whatever. It's all out there laid out. It's a party. J and B. And then it just cracks me up too that Andy and um is it Pamela, yeah. Like sneak off like no one's gonna notice. Yeah, also What's her deal? Because she like is like kind of flirting with Billy and then basically like yeah. and then like that line he has when she's like, If you have a gift for me, Andy, why don't you just take it out in front and show it everybody? He's like, Well, this is not a gift that I want to show everybody. She's like, I don't understand. He's like, It's over here. You're really gonna love it. He's obviously talking about his penis. But like I know. What what a ridiculous I mean, I understand the convention of the writing, but and the guy plays it so hilarious, but it's like is he's really like, he go, let me show you my present for you. And she's like, this is, this is what it is. Like, this is like, he really thought that was going to work out for him and stuff like that. And then oh, completely. Uh, it doesn't work out, obviously, in a very bad way. But it's just a great moment where she's that dim-witted to not understand what is happening. Yeah. Andy, Billy. Andy, Billy. Come on. 
it's not Briggs even close. Got the, he's got the little uh, mistletoe, the mistletoe yep. thing. He's, he's pulling out all this, oh all the romantic God. stops with his uh, his Izod, uh, his very tight Izod uh, shirt he wears. <laughs> I just want to know what happened to the cashiers. I think you're absolutely right. It's a great call. And speaking of Andy, that's one of my first complaints here is that after the wonderful montage, what's the warm side, warm of, the side door? of the door? Is that the name? Of- Morgan Ames. Andy's a dick. Andy lets Billy have it for no reason whatsoever. He just unloads on him. Now, it's understandable that Billy's a bit unnerved because it's nearing Christmas time here and his face is vibrating whenever he sees an image of Santa Claus. <laughs> but he's shown no lack of effort on the job. I mean, Billy's still holding his own. Yeah, he's pretty kicking And Andy ass. just unloads on him and is like, you really are basically getting on my last nerve. Your attitude is terrible. He's like, jumping all over me and every, everything I say. And Billy's like, you really shouldn't talk like yeah, that. Yeah, and he goes, well, thank <laughs> you, Ann Landers, which makes no sense. <laughs> he says, thank you, Ann Landers. Like, it's not an advice column comment. Like, it's such a weird reference. Yeah. Thank you, Ann Landers. It's very weird. I'm just calling out Andy in this moment. It was just a little jarring, my complaint here, because I don't understand why they had Andy unloading on him after we've just been shown that Billy is a stand-up employee. I think it's because he, know, he knows that it's just weird. Pam is kind of into the... She's, she wants to get on the Billy train. I got I you. So. Again, I'm not really sure that what the delineation of roles people did at that store. I'm thinking Billy is just freaking out because of the whole Christmas thing, and it is affecting his work, but we don't see that. We never see it. No, we never see it. We just see it. We just, Andy's just going off, and I was like, we don't see a moment where he's like, move those boxes. He's like, I'm not doing it because of Santa Claus. Yeah, he trips that one time, and that's about it. He does help the kid get the toy from the top, and then the kid uh, gives him a kiss, which is a very weird moment. I like what I like when he's like uh, when he's like at Santa Claus, like he's so good with children. They're literally three feet away; they can't hear him say "stop it, stop it," or Santa will punish you. They don't hear those lines. They're they're standing right there. They're not like on the other side of the store. Yeah, you can't tell your daughter is terrified. He's so good with you. Isn't that just a universal complaint, especially with 80s movies, or even today sometimes? It's the spatial arrangement. <laughs> it's the issue with the space between objects, humans, beings, and things, and places where clearly either you can or cannot hear things, and it's just overwhelmingly obvious, and they just they assume the audience is stupid and wouldn't pick up on he's it. He's so but, good with you know, kids. Like, no, no, he's You can not. clearly see that he isn't. He's being awful to your young daughter. You, you, you he's are truly being awful. <laughs> you are less than a 12 inches away. And you might notice that she's tearing up right now. She's crying. <laughs> so you should probably leave. Find another Santa that doesn't have a box cutter in his Yeah, place. yeah, yeah. Well, Sim's relationship with the lady in that place. They're, they, they, oh, yeah. They got a thing going on. They're getting, getting I think so. And they're, they're singing later on together, and she's got the funny hat on or whatever. Oh, she's a good She ball. gets a good death with the bow and arrow. Well, I'm just going to jump right into my other complaint. Should Iris Toys be carrying an archery set that can kill someone? Well, I don't know. I buy it. You can buy sporting goods at a toy store. Really? Sure. Usually it's the flimsy string with the suction cup. <laughs> that's yeah, that's they, kind of what that's, I, that's, that's what kind they, of what I would be expecting at a toy. That's store. what they should have used. Maybe that's a they should, nerf. They, a he should have killed her with a nerf arrow, like it went in her throat and she choked. It's a pretty impressive shot. Listen, it, it's the best, it's the hottest toy shop in town. It's Sims. Everybody goes to Iris. <laughs> uh, that is a good. That's a good point. You're right. Maybe they shouldn't have like uh, like a full on uh, a full yeah, blown. Maybe not. Maybe it should have been more of a, it has more of a kids one. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. All right. I hadn't thought about that. It's a good point. You know what? This movie fails in my book now. 
It would have been great if it was like a crossover from Friday the 13th where it was like the Friday the 13th archery set, like a horror theme. I like that. And that's what he uses to kill. Yeah, That's a good one. All right. That's a good complaint, though. Patrick, do you have some complaints or Swiss cheese? No, I mean, my complaint was about the was more about the not exploring the history of the father and the grandfather and the Santa Claus things. We covered that. That was sort of my 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 bigger complaint. But that's more, I think, just because I, I have a, a need to fulfill that backstory. And I'm hoping that Michael Hickey one day lore. explores the, the lore of Grandpa and the Chapman family. That could be you know, like Silent Night, Deadly Night, the Chapmans. That could be a six uh, six episode series on Netflix, a prestige horror drama. Let's do it. That was the thing I was going to talk about. Okay, Bill, did you have anything else? Okay, so Sister Margaret, you know, she feels sorry for Billy and gets him this job at the toy store. I mean, you know, he has a problem with Christmas. That's the epicenter of Christmas is a toy store. Why would she put him in that situation? Make him a dishwasher. Good point. Not only does she know that the kid had a traumatic childhood, she knows that Santa is absolutely at the center of right. So why would you? Why drama. would she get him that job? Find him somewhere else. Really good point. Again, she set him up to fail. She set him up. I'm telling you guys, there's something sinister going on between Grandpa, the dad, the nun. They're all in a cult to bring back Killer Santa. There is some larger story play. It's like the Thorn L series uh, trilogy in Halloween, where there's like a cult of Michael Myers. There is a cult of Billy, it's all been put in action, and Sister Margaret is part of it. It's like Rosemary's Baby. That's great. It's like, it's- That's super creepy. It's great. you got to flush this out. You're Because you're right. She's a smart woman. Right. Right? She takes care of kids. She knows kids. Maybe she was hoping that, well, she puts them there because the season's coming up. You know, she knows it's going to get busy at the toy store because of Christmas. So Right. Yeah. And she waits until Christmas Eve to call and check on them. I'm like, eh, she did that a little bit earlier. And then when they're like, oh, he's putting on the Santa suit, she's like, holy shit. It's like all of a sudden she like puts it all together in her head like, oh, my God, I've just made a horrible mistake. Whoops. Didn't see that coming. Maybe she didn't know that the toy store had a Santa Claus. Like if we're going to give her the benefit of the doubt, maybe she didn't. Maybe not all toy stores had. Maybe she thought, oh, they're going to be at the Gimbals. True. Sims isn't going to have a toy store or Santa Claus. Again, this leads us to believe like where, what is her relationship with Billy? Like you're right. If, if he's living at a place, she gets him a job. Does she never check on him once? Like she gets the gig for him and then she like she disappears for months until Christmas Eve. Which is like, I'm going to give the store a call and see how Billy's doing. Mm-hmm. And then Andy's like, he's not working in the stock room anymore. He's got a new job. Like, he's such a yeah. jerk. Ho, ho, ho. Yeah. <laughs> and why does Billy not refuse to take, I mean, is he just, like, is he a people pleaser? Why does he decide to take on the, the Santa Claus gig at that point? That's what I thought. I mean, I guess Sim says, you, you, you're, you'll do it. Whatever. Like, oh, whatever you need, Mr. Sims, I'm, I'm here to help. And then he puts on the Santa outfit. Doesn't he go, you know what? I'm like, I really... I had this thing as a kid and my mom and that's a long story, but I'm not really in the whole Santa Claus thing. Can I just, can we get someone else to do it? I think he is a people pleaser. He just wants to do like, if that's the job he's been that's given, true. that's what he's going to do. But yeah, and then he, does, he could have probably he, said something along the lines like this might make me snap. <laughs> just give you a heads up. I guess in his mind, he's never once had any, we've never seen in his backstory a, again, an inclination for violence. We've never seen a couple of moments where it's like he almost punched a guy and killed him or he, you know, hurt somebody. He went too far or something like that. Where it's well, like, oh, I don't know my own strength. Besides knocking out Santa. But that was because of the, <laughs> of the, the knockout. It was kind of provoked. That was provoked. Totally yeah. provoked. So you're right. I guess that's that's true. It's a good point. We did see that when we punched Santa Claus. Again, another thing you should have told the guys, hey, I punched Santa when I was a kid. I'm probably not yeah. the best guy to be a Santa Claus. <laughs> oh, details. As you said earlier, Bill, there's a lot of navigating the story of convenience to get us from A to B. It's like, we got to get Billy in a Santa Claus outfit. So 
he gets a job at a toy store at Christmas time. And then the Santa Claus breaks his leg skating or something. And they have no other choice but to, right. to get Billy right. to play Santa Claus. So you're right. It's like all these all these random, hey, like Masik said, this kid cannot catch a break. He just cannot catch a break. This poor Billy. That's true. That was kind of a weird scene, too, where she's talking in code like, oh, we need an employee. I'm like, just say. I know. Why does she just not fucking just come out right and say it to him? She's like, this one's of the male persuasion. It's like, lady, yeah. just say we need a Santa Claus. Hitting the bottle a little early. The party has she a takes nine sentences to Mrs. tell him what she could say in one sentence. Hey, Mr. Sims, there's no Santa Claus. And then he she frustrates him so much. He's like, well, then call the temp agency or whatever. You know, she's like, why are you getting so mad at me? It's like, well, because you're being so obtuse. Just give him the information and move on. <laughs> <laughs> she deserved that, arrow, Especially because that hat. That too. Jason, any other complaints? Uh, that was it for me. I, I think we can move on. All right, it's time to move on to, hey, it's an actor. So in this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's an actor. So Patrick, who is your choice for, hey, it's an actor? Is there anybody left we have not spoke about? No, I mean, I feel like we covered, I mean, Will Hare seems like that's like a huge one because just because of Old Man Peabody um, and Lene Quigley. It's pretty good. But Lillian Chauvin was a pretty big actress. And I don't know if you guys know, but she did like a really weird series on, it almost looked like a cable access show or something from the 80s, where it was all about like helping young actors navigate their way through Hollywood. And it's on YouTube because she does have such a distinct voice. So it's, it just sounds like Mother Superior telling you how to behave when you come to Hollywood. And it's a thing she produced and directed. I thought that was a pretty interesting sort of tidbit of history. But I guess she was really good friends with Charles Cellier Jr. And that's how she ended up getting cast in the movie. And he said, like, she's really the nicest person in an interview that he talked about. And then she plays like this horrible, horrible human being in the movie. But it's not at all who she is. Um, she just had a great time playing the role. But well, she does a great job. I hate her. <laughs> she do as we, oh, yeah, as we, as we learned. But yeah, those are my two. Will Will Hare and Linnea Quigley are certainly uh, certainly of note. That's great. If we could find the or get the link for that YouTube video, uh, I gotta find it. It's maybe for- post it in the show notes or something. That'd be great. Jason, you have anybody? Well, yeah. So I just wanted to give a quick shout out to Leo Getter because I almost chose him as my. Hey, it's that actor. He plays the role of Tommy the boyfriend who likes to make love on a pool table with his shirt off. Yeah. But I already chose him as my, Hey, it's that actor. When we covered footloose on this. That's hilarious. Wait, he's in that movie. I didn't, I did not know that. Yeah. And uh, he was also Ensign Fox in No Way Out in 1987. One of my favorites. Oh, that's a great movie. Uh, We loved talking about that movie. So I'm going with Britt Leach who plays Mr. Sims. He's got that face, you know, uh, maybe not a household name, but you recognize him. And I did, and he dies by hammer to the head. Tough way to go. Wow. That guy goes all the way back to shows like The Brady Bunch, The Partridge Family, Mission Impossible, The Odd Couple, Happy Days, you name it. We also know him as Mr. Potter from The Last Starfighter, 1984, another movie we covered on this podcast. He was Al Wallace in Weird Science in 1985. He was in the film Baby Boom. He played Reg in The Great Outdoors in 1988. Leach was often cast as no-nonsense police officers, scruffy, everyday, blue-collar, working-class types, crude hillbillies in both movies and TV shows alike. He pretty much shut it down as an actor in 1991. He's still with us at age 83. I met him. Oh, did you really? He was at the Beyond Fest screening. He was at the screening? Yeah, he was great. He was great. He was, like, really old and doddering and stuff like that. But And he was, like, very ornery. 
but he was really nice. And I was curious if he was still alive because that was 2014 and he seemed, he seemed pretty old at that point. But according to IMDb, he's still with us at 83. A couple fun facts. He dropped out of Northwestern University and once shared an apartment with Ray Manzarek and Jim Morrison of The Doors. That's not surprising. Linnea Quigley's in a great movie called Night of the Demons, if you guys have never seen that's a great like Halloween horror movie where she basically puts like she gets possessed and at one point she takes an entire to a lipstick and puts it inside of her breast. Oh what in the hell? Gets an incredible visual gag. Uh it's pretty pretty wild. And of course, right. Linnea Quigley in one of the all time great films, Return of the Living Dead. Oh yes. She played uh Trash, yep. the uh who basically strips down in the cemetery and then gets Yes, yeah, her fantasy of fantasy. having all the old men uh, grab her ends up happening by a bunch of old zombies. And it's an incredible scene. It's a great film. One of the all time uh, great horror movies. Yeah, I did not pick her just because I always reference people from Return of the Living Dead when we do this pod. So, yeah, yeah there's one person left. I think we really haven't talked about uh, Charles Durkop, who played the initial killer Santa. Look at this. He, he did two movies with Robert Redford. First one being The Sting, where he played Floyd the Bodyguard. And then he played Flat Nose Curry in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Wait, which one's Floyd the Body? I just watched this thing. Which one's Floyd the Bodyguard? Oh, 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 the guy. Oh, yes, yes, yes. The guy who's on the train, who's the one who's helping him down the cards. Oh, my God. It totally is him. He's great in this thing. Very cool. Part of the crew with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Oh, that's so wild. Yes, I totally now see him as that character of Floyd. He is great. Yeah, he's, he's still kicking, 86. Is he really? Yeah. yeah. That scene, that gas station, I mean, uh, Bill, where did you grow up? Uh, Philadelphia. Jason grew up in sort of northern Illinois area. I grew up in right at the edge of the city. But that gas station at the beginning of the movie looks like every gas station that's in like Lake County from the 80s. Oh, yeah. No question. I mean, it looks uh, yeah. it looks like I mean, you no question you, about you, it. you could have kept in Grand Avenue. I mean, it looks like just a brick, a big cold brick store. That is just Waffle Hall snacks and beers. And it looks so cold. Like it looks like it's so cold. That's, <laughs> you nailed it. That's it. You can feel it. And that's what I always appreciate about regarding production design, set design, art design. But but that particular location, you can feel it. The cold breath coming As out you leave your car, car to go running into outside. The, yeah. I mean, it's like, it looks right out of like a, like a Northern Illinois gas station. You can see the exhaust coming out of the car and you just know everything you touch is cold. And There's probably still gas stations in Northern Illinois that look like that now. Have not changed in 60 years. <laughs> we could probably go find one now and reshoot that scene. It's just the fact the store owner is going to pull out a gun over $31. Like we said, 220 now. There is people always talked about that if you really pay attention to that scene because they obviously shot that in 1983 or whatever. That the all the prices in the store of the things that are being sold are all 1983 prices and not 1972 prices or whatever. It's hilarious. That's why he's so got thirty one dollars. He's got everything. That's right. That's just right. expensive yeah. gas station. Yeah. Typical gas station <laughs> prices. Yeah, yeah. Seventy nine cent Coca Cola is outrageous out there in Utah. But uh, that's that's amazing. I did not know that about that actor. What's that actor's name? Charles Deercup. That's great. I had no idea. That's a good find. Good call. It's funny. Now you say it, I can see, because, you know, he's wearing the Santa thing. You can't really. No. Because in the Sting, he's got, he's such, he's so square jawed in the Sting. He's got this great vintage look. Yes. So in the Santa thing, he's very round looking. But now, you know, that he's got a very distinct nose. Mm -hmm. And so now when you said that, I go, oh, yeah, the eyes and the nose. I can totally see that. Yes. That guy. It turned out very badly for him. He, you know, was working for the Big Mick out in New York. Things didn't work out. Ended up going out of Utah. Had to, like, hold up a couple of gas stations and then turned to a really bad life of crime for Floyd. Floyd did not end things that end well for him in the 70s. Not at all. (laughs) 
All right, so this brings us to facts and trivia. What are some fun facts or trivia we have about Silent Night, Deadly Night? Share. Uh, I got one, and this is this I only discovered now when I was doing the research for this podcast. And I said to you guys, I have the vinyl that Death Waltz put out a couple years ago, and the vinyl has two parts to it. It's got the Perry Bodkin synthesizer soundtrack in one record, and then the other record is all of the Morgan Ames Christmas music which was written to sound like really legitimate Christmas music. But I discovered in researching this that they had plans to release all of Morgan Ames' Christmas music as a legitimate Christmas album to coincide with the film. Here's great Christmas music that we wrote. She actually is a composer of note, had worked with some big-time composers, Quincy Jones. She's come from a long pedigree and had written a lot of Christmas music. So she was like a legitimate composer, She's the one who actually got Perry Bodkin, the film composer, to come in, I believe, to get was one or the other. They knew each other. And it was his first time he was doing a synthesizer score, which was great because it was cheap. He could just do it at his house. And then she wrote all this really earnest Christmas music that they wanted to populate the film with and then treat it like it's real music. And in the movie, they're always singing this stuff like it's a real carol. You guys ask, like, is this music I've heard? Well, you haven't. But the way that they treat it, like when they're singing that Santa's watching, which is written for the film, like, Sims and the girl are singing it behind the counter drunk at one point where it's like, oh, the world famous family classic Santa's watching, which is only written for this movie, but it's treated like it's like a global sensation. So they were going to release this album and I wasn't sure if that's really true. So I actually emailed Morgan Ames to her website and she wrote back this response like within a minute because I wrote like, I'm sure you were so tired of talking about this movie (laughs) and you have like a whole other career, but I just have a question. Were you actually going to release a Christmas album? And she said that uh, she always finds it entertaining how many people ask her about this movie. And she said, yes, she goes, the movie had all kinds of weird rights issues. And the producer, I don't know if you guys know the history, but the producer kind of screwed everybody out of the movie when he got the rights to the movie. And so these guys had to just get the movie back recently. That's why we, that's why they have all these copies of the movie available now. And so she said they were, there was plans though to release a legitimate Christmas album of just the music she wrote for the film. And it all went away when the movie got pulled from the theaters. And in my mind, I just can't imagine like, Sing all your favorite Christmas songs from Silent Night, Deadly Night, Santa's Watching, Christmas Fever. Like, was it going to have like a picture of a fireplace in the front, like a real, like a Ronco 80s Christmas album, the K-Tel kind of thing? Like, but apparently there was. They had written all this music and they thought, let's sell the music as a legitimate Christmas music and try to do that. So um, she did mention the newer albums that she was very excited that they'd come out because the music finally did get released. But um, there was plans to release a Christmas album. And I would I thought that would have been hilarious had they actually done that. Um, so that's a little bit of trivia I learned from uh, from doing research. I love it. Absolutely. That's great. Stuff. Yeah, I won't lie. I mean, I thought some of it was kind of catchy. It's just because it's the catchy. actors are singing it, it doesn't sound that great. But I was like, oh, it works. Is it a real song? Like I said, because of the cult status, you're, you're surprised well, it hasn't you taken the, off. the song at the end, too, during the closing. That's credits. the same song at the beginning. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's legit. Like, it's. yeah, it sounds legit. Mm-hmm. And we hear that song several times throughout the movie. Like many people sing are singing that song, Santa's Watching. By the way, the lyrics of Santa's Watching are extremely creepy. I mean, it lays out the yeah. whole like how there's a guy who oh, yeah. watches you when you sleep, which, by the way, was the title of the original short story. He sees you when you're sleeping when they were right when they like got the film or whatever. So which was like kind of where I think the whole premise came from that there's a guy who watches you when you sleep, which is pretty creepy in itself. But anyways, Chris's album is uh, something I thought was pretty interesting. Jason? The concept of the film was pitched by executive producer Scott J. Scheind, who at the time accepted screenplay ideas and submissions from the public. One of these was a short story entitled He Sees You When You're Sleeping, written by a Harvard University student named Paul Kaimi or Kaimi. 
Uh, sorry if I got that wrong. He's coming after you. But uh, he's going to watch me while I'm sleeping. <laughs> but here's what I'd like to share. Yeah. Six minutes of footage was edited out of the film out of fear of a potential X rating, reducing the runtime from 85 minutes to 79 minutes. The cut scenes included a few extra character beats and some more gory shots. For the Blu-ray release of the film, a search was conducted for the missing footage to prepare an uncut version of the film. And even though the footage was discovered in a TriStar Pictures vault, it had been kept in such poor condition that any restoration yeah, would be impossible. So if watching the Blu-ray, one can see the noticeable drop in quality between the standard definition inserts and the original theatrical footage. It's super stark. Oh, God. explains a lot because I'm watching the movie. Oh, you, and you, first, you didn't know this? I had no idea. <laughs> And the quality of the footage changes drastically. And I'm like, oh, my God, what happened? It looks here? like a student Why film. Is, yeah, it just goes dark and you see the grainy film aspect and all that. And wait, is this a stylistic choice? <laughs> because at one moment, there's a great moment. I forgot which moment it was, but I think he is triggered. And then the film stock, like the, the quality of film goes dark and it's very low quality. And I was like, Oh, that's cool if they decided to go really gritty <laughs> at this moment. I'm like, oh no, then I find out later. Oh, okay, this is what happened. Yeah, it was like it was like a beta source or something. Yeah. There were a couple of releases. The first DVD, I actually have an unrated laser disc, which has those edits in there, which is like it's VHS right compared next to film. It's really bad. And then the DVD came out many years ago, unrated, also had those. And then the Blu-ray, the Scream Factory one, which is really good. Uh, that one, they try to do the best they could with matching it, but like it's, you know, the decapitation scene, the antlers, like, and, and by the way, it's, it doesn't help that the, the effects look pretty hokey. Like they're, you know, obviously like really some really rough practical effects in those moments. So I think actually the rated version actually is, I think, a better version of the movie to watch because it doesn't like stick out when it gets to those scenes, but it's fun to see what they would have done in some of those cases. You see the antlers really coming out of the stomach and all that stuff like that. But it does really jump out at you. Yeah, I thought it was bad film stock that got processed wrong. They're like, well, we, we don't have money to reshoot, so we're just got to no, use it. Yeah. No, it sucks, though, when they you know they go back to try to restore something and they find things that are such poor quality. It's it's kind of disheartening. Scream Factory does an incredible job with their releases when it comes to restoring stuff and finding old prints and finding people who have old prints and in, in salt mines or whatever. So if anybody was going to try to get it right, it'd be them. I firmly believe that they exhausted every search they could to try to make it as best they can. All right. Um, so Silent Night, Deadly Night was released on November 9th, 1984 on 398 screens on an estimated budget around $1 million. It grossed $2.5 million domestically as it was pulled from theaters after its second week of release due to the high amount of protest about the content of the film. And also, interestingly enough, do you know what other movie it premiered with on the same day? Nightmare on Elm Street. Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. And it actually was doing better than Nightmare on Elm Street. Right. Yeah. I saw that in the research. Which is insane. Yeah. The vinyl album I have actually has a great insert of all the news articles coming out about the film and like the all the protesting. But there's some really funny pictures online of like kids holding like Santa's not a killer, like <laughs> signs outside yeah, of the like, store. It's so dumb. It's like, here's a nine year old protesting a movie that they can't fucking see anyways. Oh yeah. Like it, it, yeah. it's it's ridiculous. Right. It's like it was not made for nine year olds. So like why do you care? Like I guess I, I was telling you it was it was the promotion and the fact but, you know, yeah. you think like in 1984, now if you go on Tubi, there's like 8 million Santa Claus killer, killer oh, movies. Yeah. Snowman <laughs> I mean, killers, insane. elf killers. There's <laughs> so many. <laughs> you know, you just catch lightning in the bottle. I wonder if they had not really, I guess TriStar, 
right? They had ties to Coca-Cola. There's like a larger story there, right? Because Coca-Cola. Oh, like, yeah, I do remember. Yeah. Drink a Christmas. And so they were like parent company. They're like, well, we don't really need this kind of publicity. But I mean, it is crazy to think that a film got pulled from release in theaters after two weeks. I mean, and you talked about in the box, this is the film they didn't want you to see. They absolutely used that marketing when it came to the video store. Like it was, this is the film that they didn't want you to see. So now here's your chance to right. see it. I mean, that was sure. That's what gave it its life afterwards was yeah. smartly just being like, let's just say, tell people that this was the movie banned and just make it even more taboo. I mean, I don't know about you guys. I was obsessed as a kid with commercials at the end when they said rated R. Anytime you heard rated R on the TV, I was like, oh, fuck, I got to see what this movie's about. And my brother was going, was old enough to go see movies and he would tell me all about the movies when I came back from them. So, so anything that was like taboo as a kid, you know, you're going to try to find it. <laughs> that's just, that's just the rule. Awesome. Anything else for facts? I have nothing else on the, uh, on the trivia. That was my trivia. So for reviews, you know, Cisco and Ebert gave it two huge thumbs down. Great review. If you've ever seen the video of it, it's hilarious. Gene called it awful and pretty much called out the makers of the film. Yeah, it was great. That was great. He named them like twice. Like, I'm going to say their names again. Yeah. I felt bad for Charles Sellier Jr. Guy was not a horror filmmaker. He was like a Grizzly Adams guy. And by the way, ended up becoming like a huge family friendly filmmaker in like in church groups later on. Like he just was trying to tell a story. He was not, you know, whatever. This was just a gig. He was a low budget filmmaker and he was going to make a movie and he offered the job. So you hear him talk to this guy. He's not like a weird sleazy director. He's just a guy's like got a script. We made a movie. We made the movie we wanted to make. And that's what we did. But they treat it like it's Satanists making films, which is hilarious. Oh, yeah. Uh, Leonard Malton gave it zero out of four stars. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 44%. And IMDb gives it a rating of 5.8. Come on. Bullshit. I give it all the ratings. I give it all the ratings. You know why? The movie does exactly what it sets out to do. It does not pull any punches. It doesn't shy away from what it wants to be. It's sleazy. It's exploitation. It's gory. It is absolutely offensive. And if you're going to, as an adult viewer of horror movies, try to just have a great time enjoying like a just a, a movie that just is not apologetic about what it wants to set out to do. You can't beat it. It does all those things. It, it doesn't pretend it is anything. What is exactly what you think it is. And I think that's why it's all the silly things we pointed out. Like, but every turn of this movie is entertaining. Like it does connect with audiences, obviously. Something about it does connect people. And I think if you are a filmmaker and you find any way in to get people, I mean, look, the life of this movie has is so beyond so many other films that have come and gone and continues to always get a packed house whenever it plays at a revival, still has merchandise tied to it, still has a rabid fan base that wants stuff about it. So I think it succeeds on every level for, for what it is. I think it's a, I think it's a great film. Great stuff. Uh, I also wanted to uh, take this moment, Senior Singh, because it does obviously have its huge, huge cult following. I want to give a shout out to a, a fan of ours, and we are a fan of his, and his name is Brian Scott, and he's a big horror fan. And uh, he chimed in as soon as we had posted that we were going to be covering this film, and he's a big fan as well. And uh, Brian, thanks for, for listening, and uh, we're fans of yours, and uh, thanks for the support, man. Nice, Brian Scott. Give Thank a you. shout out. Thanks, Brian. Yep. Um, so this brings us to final questions. Jason, do you have any final questions about today's movie for us? Funny enough, we've answered some of the questions already, or we've uh, conjectured or uh, come up with maybe some potential spinoff, I guess. Oh, we got a whole a whole universe. Because here's another one that we, we kind of touched on. It was, what do we think happened to the Santa Claus killer from the beginning of the film? Is he still out there? Well, is he still out there at the time of 
because after the carjacking, years later, he kills sure. Billy's parents. Yeah, he probably doesn't get busted. Because how old do we think he was th- at that probably point? His 40s. Looks like in his 40s, 50s. So when he did the carjacking and then Look, it's... Look, if Michael Myers is running around in, 50, in his 80s plus, killing so, people <laughs> in yeah, Halloween. so he could still, still be out there. He wasn't caught, correct? I mean, we just leave him. He just, he gets away with He gets with away with murder. murder. I think he's out there. And I think how great, again, how great would have been had it been a showdown between murderous rampage Billy and Floyd, the uh, the bouncer, as oh Killer Santa. He's like, I know you. He's like, I killed your parents when you were a kid, and I'm going to kill you now. And he's like, naughty. And they have a whole showdown in front of the gas station. Like, oh, that could have been so great. That's oh, That'd be incredible. As if he gets wind that Billy has kind of taken the moniker. Yes, the, yeah, Santa, yeah. And he's taken on the role. And, so he, it, and it, it triggers him. It angers yeah. him. He's like, I'm the I'm killer, the killer Santa. Santa. Exactly. I think he's definitely still out there. In the movie world of 1984, right. he's okay. absolutely still out there. He's like the Zodiac. He just, he just he's out there till he yeah. dies of old age. It is funny because I did overthink because, you know, the family pulls up to the Santa. Maybe his car broke down. He ran out of gas. So they're in the middle of nowhere. Well, how did he get out of that situation? He didn't take their car because maybe Ricky was in the we back. Well, Ricky was in the yeah, back. Maybe he left the baby on the side of the road. Maybe. I was just Again, trying to figure out how he got out of that situation. I think he was faking the car thing. I think he was I think he was like pissed off about the twenty bucks and he decided like he needed, you know, whatever. He had to just you know, he's a violent guy. He fakes the whole thing on the side of the road because he says very weird. He's like, No, not really. No, just ran into some bad luck. I wondered if he was trying to get more money. I okay. think that's what was probably happening. He was like, right. he's like, he's like, I buy that. Oh, now, while all of a sudden he decides to be basically be like an insane, like he pulls out a knife too, and he slits the mom's throat. Yeah. He's got like an exacto yeah, blade. It's a switch blade. Yeah. So yeah. what's he got the gun? He's got the blade. Has he got ninja stars in there too? Like what's, what, what else he hide in his Santa suit? Also, had he been going around to other gas stations, robbing them all of Santa Claus? Was that like the last one of the night? Well, I just thought it was weird the fact he couldn't find Billy. You know where he went. Yeah, that's true. He does. He he, he gives up. He gives up pretty yeah. soon. He gives up. Maybe he figures he's got to get out of there. That's true. Yeah, Maybe he's crying. His car's working. He yeah. just jumps in the car and goes. I have a feeling it's a hot car. He probably stole that car. Good question. Is the guy still out there? Why didn't that pay off? Again, so many open-ended stories that yes. we are just, we could mine. Oh, completely. <laughs> I mean, this is where, I mean, people want to know, too. Right now, we're in an age where true crime drama is huge. I'm into it. I listen to that stuff all the time. It's a horribly addicting. And you just go down the rabbit holes. You're like, I want to know. Let's follow the clues. Let's figure out what happened to the real killer Santa. After we leave, Jason's going to put up like a John Nash board of like the, the map of the city and try to figure out where, where everybody is. This is where Grandpa was here in the home. And then this is where Iris Toys is. And this is I have a map of Utah in my car right now. <laughs> With a Santa hat. Fold that out. <laughs> Hilarious. Billy as Killer Santa gives little Cindy the box cutter for Christmas. We've covered that thoroughly. What's the worst or most dangerous gift you've ever received for Christmas? I have one that didn't I didn't receive for Christmas, but I can say the most dangerous gift I ever got. It was for my birthday. It was given to me by my friend Jay Cauley, who, like when I was probably around this age, maybe ten, around 1984, at the height of when did the when did first blood come out? 82, 83? Yes. Did First Blood create the craze of the survival knife, or was it Rambo that created the craze of the survival knife? I can't say for sure, but I would. I was going to say Rambo. I think it was more Rambo when that became popular. But anyways, we were all in this car. We were going somewhere. All the kids were in the car and opening presents, and I opened the present, and it was a it was a survival knife, like a full on fucking twelve inch blade survival knife that this kid got for him. 
And I remember looking at like, oh my God, this is amazing. And my mom saw it <laughs> and she was like, give me that. And then I never saw it again. <laughs> she was like, no job, way mom. am I letting you have that in your room. She's like, you are going to hurt yourself or somebody. So I think my dad ended up hiding in his closet. I never saw it again, but that was quite a gift. And it made my mother really question like Jay's mom. Why would she let him buy me a, a, a survival knife for, for my birthday or whatever? Right. I think he just did it on his own. He had money and he probably didn't, she probably didn't even know that he did that because he'd be mortified. She was such a sweet woman. But anyways, it's a classic, a classic story. And all the kids were there. And of course, you open the gift like, oh, we're awesome. Like, you know, it's like a bunch of like 12-year-old boys all like excited about me getting a survival knife. And I thought that was a pretty great gift. So Jay Cauley, I, I never got to play with the survival knife you got me, but I appreciate it, pal, wherever you are. So if you're listening to this, uh, you can give me a new, no, new one for my turn 15. <laughs> now I'm old enough. I'm old enough now. I'm allowed now. to have hey. one. I'm allowed to have one. So there you go. Most dangerous gift I ever got. Great. Great story. Here's a simple question. Did either of you have a fear of Santa as a kid? None. Afraid to get on Santa's lap? I'm sure there's some pictures of me crying. No. I had a little bit of an issue, yeah, getting on the the department store Santa's lap. You remember that? Vaguely, yeah. You know, waiting in line and just anticipating. It was just, it was an awkward situation. Yeah. It was kind of stranger danger a little bit, I think in the back of my mind. Even with your parents there? It didn't feel natural. Right. I was just so much more comfortable with all Christmas traditions within the home, the warmth and security of the home, I guess. But then you played Santa for years in your family. Well, they, thank you for bringing that up because I almost forgot to mention that, that I, in fact, have a very, very close relationship <laughs> with Santa Claus <laughs> as I did play the the mythic character for almost 18 yeah, years. Yeah, you played straight. the family Santa. I, I remember wow. those. Yeah, from ages 18 to 36. It was a long, long-standing tradition in my family. I have a large extended family on my mother's side, and it would be the Christmas Eve party at my grandma's house. Very traditional. It was a beautiful thing. 40, 50 people show up, and then grandma gathers the kids around the tree, and you know people had brought gifts, and then uh, she has all the kids sing the Christmas carols, and then who shows up at the door but Santa Claus ringing the bells and coming in uh, all jolly and fat with his sack of gifts. And <laughs> it was a whole thing. So when I got old enough, my uncle, whom was pretty young himself at the time, actually, he got nervous as all hell. He would get a little performance anxiety. So I took up the mantle and it was a blast. It was really, really rewarding. One of my younger cousins, she started putting it together that every time Santa showed up, you were I was not in the room. <laughs> so she started a rumor the following year. And it got around real quickly, and we had to recruit my sister's great friend, Lon Gross. Shout out to Lon, who stepped into the boots, if you will, and did a wonderful job that year playing the role of Santa. So then I was there in the audience, and my cousin saw me. Ah, the old, the old bait and switch. I remember you telling me the stories that you'd have to switch over to the Santa Claus pretty fast. Your sister would have to help you. It was always kind of a bumbling. I always had Santa's helper. So go into another room and there's maybe a few libations, a few drinks involved <laughs> in getting a little warmed up. My sister would uh, put on the wig with the bar, the barrette. Stab you with it. Hurting a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Stab my scalp. And it was part of the hilarious shout out to Amanda. She was a great helper. My uncle Ed, a uh, great helper. I had the full costume and there was a big, white sack that held all the gifts and usually it was quite full and it was quite heavy and I had to stuff the pillows under the jacket, go outside and it was cold and I'd had to wait to hear my grandmother leading the children in the Christmas caroling and then wait for a couple of minutes out there and that's when I would start to get nervous a little bit. 
But then it started jingling the bells, and then I'd open the door. Ho, ho, ho! <laughs> ho, ho, ho! Merry Christmas! Amazing. And did the whole thing, and I would sit down. There was a problem with the pants to the suit because they were a little split in the crotch, the crotchal area. <laughs> so I would have to sit down very gingerly, and either the helper, my uncle, would kind of lean over and be like, watch the crotch there, Jay, watch the crotch. And I would have to <laughs> yank my coat down to cover my crotch oh my God. so that this is scarier than sunlight at deadly night now this is... it was a whole tradition and people would obviously the adults knew that it was me under the the costume and they would razz me a little bit and so it wasn't just the kids that would sit on santa's lap and get the gifts but it was the adults as well you can make a real production out of it but it's so it is truly rewarding when you see the kids faces that do appreciate it well worth it we can love movies about killer santa clauses and yet still rejoice in real Ernest Santa Claus stuff. Oh, yeah. Which is what I, I think a lot of people who don't yeah. understand about horror fans is like, they're always like, oh, that's so sick. You like this movie. I'm like, well, no, I, I love Christmas. And I love I love the joy that Christmas brings. And then I also love horror movies. And I love the fun that you can have with a Christmas horror movie. And I think you can absolutely have both and find joy for both. It doesn't mean you hate Christmas and Santa Claus is because you like Sunlight and Deadly Night. It's such a silly correlation. Good point. Jason, any more questions? No, I think uh, I think we can uh, start to wrap yeah. it up a little bit here. Uh, so it's time to give this movie a rating. So, Patrick, we use a five-star rating system with zero stars being the worst and five stars being the best. And half-star increments are allowed. Nice. So Patrick, since you picked this movie today, it would be safe to assume you would give it high marks. But will Jason and I agree? So why don't you start us off with your rating before Silent Night, Deadly Night? Well, as I said before, whatever ratings you have, I give it all the ratings. It's a great film. It's exactly what it's supposed to be. It sets out to do. It holds up. It's entertaining. Connects to an audience. Like I said, it's sleazy. It's exploitative. It's fun. It's campy. It's bloody. It's a it's a great film. So everything. I throw it all. I I put it on the shelf with The Godfather. <laughs> Damn, throwing <laughs> it down. I love The Godfather, but you know, I can I can I can love both these movies equally. Jason? Gosh, uh, how do I follow that up? I, because Patrick has just really, really swayed me here a bit. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing. <laughs> no, but because his love for this type of film and genre is infectious. It's great. And I, I hope, you know, obviously, Bill, you and I, we like to have this effect on our fans as well. When we talk lovingly or adoringly about a certain genre that we are attached to and we share our nostalgia. I mean, we're passionate about this stuff. And the way we speak about it, uh, one of the biggest, uh, most rewarding things is that when a fan or, or listener will say, hey, I, I had to watch the movie for either for the first time or watch it again because of uh, having listened to you guys talk about it. So we, I, I just really appreciate Patrick Duty's love for all things horror in the genre and his knowledge about it. Uh, I, however, to be completely honest, I, I'm going to give this 3.5 box cutters. That's a good, that's a good review. I think that's a good number. I was impressed. I think this is a great horror movie. It's upsetting. It's disturbing. It's horrific in moments. It's strangely funny in moments. Some of the humor is surprising, uh, which is great. It can take you by surprise. Yeah, it can um, catch you off guard a little bit. Uh, I find some of it relatable. The idea of the play on the Santa Claus mythos or, you know, the lore of that to itself is was is really clever and smart. Uh, part of it, I don't find like I, I the orphanage stuff is pretty kind of upsetting for me personally. 
Uh, some of the effects, as uh, Patrick had alluded to, don't quite hold up, but the idea behind it is still sound and, and scary. So, but even then, you're saying like the orphanage stuff, like it's impactful. Like I, to me, the oh, it's so extremely effective. The, don't the, get me the wrong. The car attack at the it. beginning is like that is a very and that I mean. I think it's just a really dumb thing all parents say, but like, now I have a kid, it makes it harder. But like it is, anytime I see children in trauma, that's always a very difficult thing. So I feel really sure. bad for Billy and that scene in the car and having whistles and stuff like that. But it is effective in the sense that like it does a great job of setting up this really horrific incident. And do, like I said, it doesn't pull any punches and, and stuff like that. you completely sympathize. You totally do. So you're, you're invested. Yeah. They play it for real. And that's why I think it's so effective. They play it for real. So... And it does have its moments of being lighthearted, but you're right. There is some very, very violent, disturbing stuff in the film. Um, I don't recommend it for kids, but I do think it it makes it an effective movie. I think things that are tough to watch in some places are totally fine. I think it's okay to to be like, oh, I can't watch that or witness that part or whatever. That the, the scene in the car is a very the orphanage one doesn't bother as much as you do, but the, the car scene, the attack on the car is, is is pretty brutal. Yeah. How about you, Bill? What what are your feelings? Usually when we go into these movies and it's, when we find out it's like a film series, the main thing is, all right, did the first one want to now make me want to watch the next couple? <laughs> it's interesting. And it does. I want. I now want all to right. see part two, three, four, and five. Um, so I, I'm giving it a solid three. I think right. um, the story, how it establishes Billy's character is good. But like I said, it gets really, really choppy. And that's just very jarring to me. Yeah, the kills are okay. Solid three. I would recommend it. All right. It's a fair assessment. Definitely something I will probably revisit again and uh, do look forward to seeing if uh, maybe uh, Ricky gets his revenge, at least on Mother Superior, which I'm hoping. Patrick. Yes, sir. Thank you so much for being on our show. Why don't you take a moment to plug what you have going on, buddy? And let the audience know how they can check out your work. You can find me that I'm active on Twitter pa- at Patrick J. Duty. Um, there's I'm not on anything else other than Twitter, and I'm I'm staying there. Find me there. You can interact with me there. You can tag me in fun stuff. I do a uh, every year in October. I run a horror movie in memoriam. I've done it for two years now. Uh, me and this other gentleman named Eric Lawrence, another University of Miami guy, who we we find uh, poor. Poor people in films who uh, died by circumstance, not necessarily because they're tied directly to the story. So usually like a garbage man gets stuck in the wrong place at the wrong time or a city worker or something like that. So we, we honor those who do not deserve uh, to die at the hands of the murderous people. Um, we didn't have not used the silent and I like kill in there. I have to make sure it falls under the rules. So we do that. We have two years worth in there now in two Octobers. You can check that out. And of course, uh, nailed it's always on netflix so we did a halloween season this year that was a lot of fun back in october and then um my next series secret chef will come out sometime next year on hulu uh for hulu disney and we're in the middle of making that now awesome and uh we have a giveaway we do we have a giveaway i'm very excited about this what's hilarious is that i mentioned this thing to Massic, and he thought i was like i had collected some vintage thing and then when i told him no, this is brand new again the testament that this film has had, there is, as of just about a week ago, a brand new. I can't show it to anybody because we're not. Uh, this is a, this is an audio thing, but no, I'm holding in my hand and showing showing you guys this game, Silent Night Deadly Night. The game, it's a little tabletop board game, it was put together by some guys at a company called Wonder Wheel Entertainment, but it's being sold currently through Fright Rags, which is like the greatest 
t-shirt company for horror film fans. They have incredible designs, so you should check it out. Anyways, I was one of the original Kickstarter backers a year ago when they decided to make this game. I was like, well, hell yeah, I want to get involved in that. And uh, so I'm actually in the book in the name of the Kickstarter backers. My name's in there somewhere. So in my Kickstarter, I got two copies that was part of the Kickstarter deal. I don't know why I picked the two copy version. I just did because I'm greedy and it's, you know, it's Christmas time. So I have an extra sealed copy that I would love to give away to a fan of the film. You might want to, you know, win one because you don't want to pay for one or times are tough or whatever. Or you're just thinking like you're going to give it a shot. Now, normally for giveaways, people just do a, uh, hey, uh, tag and retweet, and we're, you know, we're one lucky winner will get this. But I, I'm going to give it, I'm going to put a little spin on it if you guys are cool with that. Something, make it, give us a little more oomph, get some people out there, some creators out there to have some fun with it. I would love it that you have to make at most 30 second piece of video that tributes this movie and however you want that to be. You can recreate a scene. You can recreate a scene in Lego. You can do it in stop motion. You could sing a song. You could read a poem. You could recite a line from the film as a soliloquy. You can do whatever you want to do, but it's got to be a piece of video. And I think what we should have them do is uh, they post it on Twitter. They retweet the original uh, whatever. When you guys post this podcast, they retweet the podcast, put their video, tag me in there. And then uh, I'll pick a top five personal top faves and then i'll i'll do a drawing and pick a name from a hat to give away the game the silent night deadly night board game the game the game and basically the, the, pl- game the thing is giveaway you play one of the characters from the movie the, the base set has four characters from the film and you have to stop billy from getting from iris toy store to the orphanage to kill mother superior bill had mentioned that he was hoping that you actually could help billy right uh, go exactly. kill mother superior but it's not <laughs> the point of the game the point of the game is to stop the evil Bill, we're not trying to help the evil. We're trying to stop the evil. You're right. So anyways, that's the giveaway. What are you, what are you guys, are you guys in? Want to do it? 100,000%. Right, Thank you so much for offering the board game okay. up for a giveaway. We're going to do yes. it. Okay. 30 second video. Outstanding. Submit it. At Patrick J. Duty. Yeah, you got to be over 18. So don't lie about your age. Yeah. Be in the United States. So we'll put the details. It's going to be Christmas time. So no people have got, you know, I don't know, Christmas stuff to do. Rather than just make funny videos to win a board game from satellite the other night, but we'll put it. We'll put a pretty generous time limit on there. I don't expect anybody's going to get this game before Christmas time. So if you're looking to win this game, since you can gift it somebody, it's not going to happen. You'll probably have it in the new year, but you'll have it ready to go for Christmas of 2023. Uh, when you want to play the game, you'll have a brand new game, and it may be sold out by then. So get in on it now. This may be your only chance to get a copy. Yes, we'll have the information in the show notes. So retweet, make a video tag patrick someone will get a board game so it'll be pretty cool yeah we'll pick a winner i'm excited i'm excited to see what people do i love videos yeah if someone does a rendition of the warm side of the door that's that's my winner right there or maybe someone takes one of our ideas we've pitched in the show yeah you know there's hey. the story of grandpa i mean come on there's there's a whole world to mine from silent did the night so so great so let's get in there so let's great get in there yes come on guys do it <laughs> all right <laughs> All right. Well, that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Thanks again to Patrick for joining us today. Please check out his show. Nailed it on Netflix and the upcoming Secret Chef on Hulu. Also, please take the time to subscribe, give us a review, and rate us. If you want to reach out, you can email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, movies you want us to cover, or recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook, Meta, and TikTok at all80smoviespodcast or tweet us at podcast all 80s for our next episode we will be wrapping up season two with scrooged starring bill merrick classic 
We hope you join us again. Have a totally great week, everyone. All right, everyone. Bill, Patrick, you're naughty. It was a pleasure, fellas. Thanks for listening, everyone. Good night, world. Santa's watching, Santa's waiting. Christmas time is slowly fading. Wait, hold on. You guys share recipes? People put recipes up? Not yet. I'm still waiting for one, but I keep asking for one. I, <laughs> I, did, asking I, was, for like, I was like, that was a, quite a left turn. I didn't I didn't expect that coming with the recipes. But put your recipes. Hey, listen, if, if any of our nailed it bakers are out there we're listening to this episode, which no doubt a few will probably listen to when I when I tweet it, please post some of your nailed it recipes. They'd love to hear they'd love to hear about it. Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> that'd Amazing. be great.